3: this is the starship sofa everybody welcome hello and welcome to show number 176 i am your host tony c smith Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Marvelous show today, nice... After last week's condense, we have big old chunky show this time. Number show 176. Give you a little heads up what's coming into this show. We have part 1 of 12 of these little short, short little fictions by Michael Swanick. I'll talk more about it, but this is part 1 and it's how to run a con. Next up is a fact article and it's Morgan Saletta's Everything... Then we have one of the main fiction stories today, Galapagos, by Caitlin R. Kieran. Then there's an interview with Terry Martin. Terry Martin runs UK magazine called Murky Depths. Have a listen to that interview as well. And by, just before I jump in a little bit further, have a look at the cover as well, Terry has kindly let Starship Sofa. You put the cover of his magazine on the front of Starship over, and it is stunning. So do have a look over there. Then we've got some more main fiction. It is Dr. North's Wound by John Dobbs. Then there's an interview with John at the end of the story. So that is today's show. I hope you will stick around and enjoy it. And like I say, do pop over at the front of the website. Have a look at this little bit of our cover as well there from Terry Martin. And I'll see, we'll get to Terry's interview a little bit later on in the show but it is a, a much appreciated thank you very much Terry Martin so first up this is a little, sh- what we're going to play now is a little short and I'm going to play them there's 12 of them and I'm going to play them every week. weekend by Michael Swanick and Michael's rope is <laughs> he's, he's best mate in there, Gregory Frost to do these little shorts and it's all to the lead up of michael's book and it's the the book is called dancing with bears and it comes out in may so what we're going to do is we're going to like a a big nice build up for this and you know what's really special is i get honestly i get so many on literally loads of press releases come through into my email not even my name on or anything like that just can you publish this can you mention this book can you mention this book and i just think sometimes you know they just get binned straight away Michael's come along, and Michael has, like you say, recorded 12 of these to kind of coincide. And this is exactly what Starship so far runs on. This is the fuel of our engines, you know what I mean? Perfect bits of content. So Michael's come along and published these 12 little segments to go to each week. We're going to play one for the run-up of the book. And I can't, honestly, I can't praise him enough and the idea behind it. You know, this book's going to come out by Nightshade Books and they've got some amazing things coming up in the future as well so do li- listen out for that but to kind of put it together like that instead of just sending out a press release which on, literally I'm just deleting straight away, you know, if it hasn't got my name on I haven't even bothered to kind of look who's running the show that's, you know what I mean, it's not going to happen at all but Michael's come along and and I bet it was no easy task you know what I mean, I would love to be a fly on the wall with Michael when he's actually record these with Greg, because it's You know, There's 12 of them and it would have been (laughs) great to listen to But I'll give you a little heads up about Michael Swanick He's received the Hugo Award, the Nebula Award, the Theodore Sturgeon Award, World Fantasy Award Stations of the Tide was honoured with the Nebula Award and was also nominated for the Hugo Award Edge of the World was awarded the Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award in 1989 It was also nominated for both Hugo and World Fantasy Awards Radio Waves received the World Fantasy Award in '96. The Very Pulse of the Machine received the Hugo Award in 1999 and in 2000 his Shirenzo with Tyrannosaurus won the Hugo as well. His short fiction's been collected in Gravity's Angels, A Geography of Unknown Lands, Moon Dogs, Tales of Old Earth, and a collection of short stories: Cigar Box Faust and Other Miniatures. He lives in Philadelphia with his wife. And like I say, I'm going to try and get—I'm actually going to try and get Michael on a couple of times: one early on in this little run of these series, and one at the end to talk about the book as well. So, what is these little mini parts? Well. The book is about Dogger and Surplus, these are kind of gen- gentlemen tricksters, tricksters if you like for once for a better description, and these are little snippets of how to run a successful con, and these two characters are in this new novel Dancing with Bears. I'll read the blurb for the book. Michael Swanick, the Hugo Nebula and World Fantasy Award-winning author of Stations of the Tide, delivers a stunning post-utopian novel of swashbuckling adventure, dangerous women and genocidal AIs. Come on, man. That's what... Bring it on. <laughs> Dancing with Bears follows the adventures of the notorious conmen, Dogger and Surplus. They've lied and cheated their way into the caravan that is delivering a priceless gift from the Caliph of Baghdad to the Duke of Muscovy, the only thing harder than the journey to Muscovy is their arrival in Muscovy. The audience with the Duke seems impossible to obtain, and Dagger and Surplice quickly become entangled in a morass of deceit and revolution. The only thing more dangerous than the convoluted political web surrounding Dagger and Surplice is the gift itself, the pearls of Byzantium and Zophira. the governess sworn to protect their virtue. The steampunk-esque adventure explores the great game of espionage and empire building from the point of view of the world's most accomplished conmen, and Surplus. I'll give you a little bit. Listen, this, this is what J.A. Lake says about this book. Man, this book is a total blast! It's post-apocalyptic fiction in the tradition of Aldous Babylon, Canticle for they There, straight away, Canticle for Leibowitz. If it's if it's mentioned in, with with that book, and that book there is one of my favourite favourite books. Do you know what I mean? It's got to be something special. And like I say, Nightshade books are just bringing out some amazing titles, and there's some to come as well. So, and hopefully, you know, I'll try and badger Nightshade books. I'm sure we can get a little few prizes of this book, you know, from them to kind of give out as well. Because the actual book comes out in May. So, for the next 12 weeks, we're going to run How to Run a Con by Michael Swanick with his good friend Gregory Frost. This is part one. Hello, this is Darga. And I'm Surplus.
0: And we're here to teach you how How to to run a con.
4: Before we begin the instructional part of this series, we thought we should address the question of consequences.
0: Which is to say, incarceration, durance vile, loss of freedom, in short, jail time. Because if you're going to devote yourself to a life lived by your wits, you've got to take into account that even though a smart enough individual can beat the odds, nobody escapes unscathed every single time. Amen. Now... I myself have never been jailed, but... I whoa, whoa, whoa. What about that time in Vienna? That? Well, that was a case of my stake and identity. I, I wasn't arrested for anything I'd done, but what somebody I was taken to be had done, so it, it hardly counts. And in Stockholm? If you recall, that was part of our original plan. I was in that prison strictly for business purposes. You were still jailed? I was in jail. There's a difference. So were the warden and the guards, but you'd hardly say they were incarcerated, would you? It was simply a condition of my employment. Which, to be fair, was our original thesis, that practitioners of the confidential arts should be prepared for the occasional involuntary stay in substandard government housing.
2: Indeed. Well, we could go on and on, but I think our point's been made.
0: So do I. If you you can't can't do do time, time, don't don't do crime. crime. That's all for today. This is Surplus. And I'm Daga, teaching you... How, how to, to run a, run a con. con. Hmm. About that time in the Wormenthal. Please. I was swallowed by a dragon. It was hardly the same thing. Any, anyway, it was a luxury hotel. Which you weren't allowed to leave. It served an excellent pate de foie gras. Does that sound like a jail? Point taken.
3: you go. Do listen out for the next, and I'll try and get Michael on the line as well, and we're going to have a little chat with Michael. I want to get him, like I say, a couple of times, one on early on, and then one on at the end, so we can talk about his book as well, and try and, like I say, try and get Nietzsche to give out some of those books as well. Michael, fantastic. Looking forward to it, sir. Next up is our good friend, Morgan Saleta, with Everything. Morgan!
2: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything, Reflections in Science, Science Fiction, and Philosophy. I'm Morgan Siletta. In my last two installments, I spoke about the reflective nature of science fiction, and indeed of art and narrative in general. I invited you to imagine a grand hall of mirrors, in whose galleries hang a myriad of framed looking glasses, reflecting back at us all those others in contrast with whom humanity has defined itself. As we walk through this mini-galleried hall, we glimpse, lurking in the shimmering depths, the shadowy figures of monsters and demons, of mages and sorceresses, angels, gods, heroes, and supermen. To this mini-galleried hall, science and science fiction have added a number of mirrors, including the ape, the android, and the alien. Since I began this discussion, it has occurred to me that there are some important others besides these three, including mutants, zombies, and some superheroes, but I will save those for another discussion. Today, let us briefly pause before a large side gallery, the entrance to which is framed by two large bronze statues. One, by artist unknown, shows a Neanderthal seated, chin on hand, in a pose deliberately mirroring Rodin's famous thinker. The other statue is more fantastic. It is by the 19th century French sculpture Frémier. It shows a savage, gorilla-like anthropoid with huge fangs, poised in powerful midstride. a naked human female carried effortlessly under one hairy arm, toward whom it is left to our lurid imagination to divine his intent. Entering the dim interior of the gallery, we see that on its walls hang several large mirrors, in whose mercurial planes and shadowy receding depths. We glimpse here the hulking frame of imagined man-eating gorillas and savage anthropoids, There, the shambling, stooped figure of a club-wielding caveman and an impossibly voluptuous cavewoman bearing an odd resemblance to Raquel Welch and clad in a scanty fur bikini. Shifting our gaze, we catch in another glass glimpses of a primeval forest and bands of running chimpanzees. We see an upright australopithecine, Lucy perhaps, walking boldly in a grassy open forest. And yes, there we see him, a laughing monkey, aping our every move, scratching his head, eating a peanut, and oh, no, no, but yes, he really is going to do it, flinging excrement at us from behind the bars of his cage. Turning away in disgust, we spy a mirror in whose flickering surface we see King Kong atop the Empire State Building with Fay Ray, a yodeling Johnny Weissmuller as Tarzan swinging through the forest, and Charlton Heston, gagged and on his knees before a damned dirty ape. Then, closing our eyes, we become aware of it. Music softly at first it comes the strains of sunrise from Richard Strauss's Thus Spake Zarathustra and the beating timpani echoing like great jungle drums Opening our eyes, we see another scene playing out in the mirrored frame. This one from Stanley Kubrick's and Arthur C. Clarke's 2001. We see a group of apes victoriously beating off a rival tribe with the use of their newfound bone clubs, before one ape triumphantly tosses his club in the air and it becomes, on falling, a space station performing a delicate orbital waltz to the music of Johann Strauss's The Blue Danube. blink of an eye, the ape becomes an astronaut. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the ape in the looking glass. Of course, the ape is only one of many animals who has been used to portray human traits. Indeed, we find animals used to mirror human beings in society from antiquity to the modern day, from Aesop's fables and the proverbs of Solomon to George Orwell's animal farm, we find animals and their qualities, real or imagined, used as reflections on the human condition. But the ape, as well as the monkey, has a special place, particularly because of the obvious primate resemblance to ourselves, the more so the ape because of its lack of a tail. This resemblance has fascinated since at least antiquity, when Cicero remarked, for example, what an ugly beast the ape is, and how like us. But with the birth of the modern science of evolution, begun with Darwin's publication of The Origin of the Species in 1859 and The Descent of Man in 1871, the ape takes on an entirely new role. Not only does the ape resemble us, but this resemblance is due to a shared family tree, a descent from a common ancestor, and, as we have recently determined, a correspondingly similar genetic makeup. As I have previously said, the Darwinian revolution shook humanity's conception of itself to the core. No longer the pinnacle of creation or the top link in a great chain of being, we were placed fully within the animal kingdom, one branch on a great tree of life, and thus the recognition of a true family resemblance with the great apes and other primates, our evolutionary cousins, as it were. Thus, with Darwin, depictions of human ancestors take on decidedly ape-like characteristics, and the popular albeit scientifically inaccurate, idea of a missing link between apes and humans was born. The figure of the ape-like, shambling caveman with a heavy, protruding brow and uncouth manners is such a huge part of popular imagination that it would be impossible to even include in today's discussion a slightly comprehensive list of the books, films, comics, sculptures, and paintings which have featured the caveman. One, if not the first film depiction of the caveman, is in D. W. Griffith's Man's Genesis, followed shortly thereafter by a satirical Charlie Chaplin's His Prehistoric Past. The caveman is an ever-present figure in serious speculative prehistoric fiction as well, from J. H. Roney's 1911 Quest for Fire to Gene M. All's Earth Children series. Frequently identified with the Neanderthal, the caveman also has a rather more noble cousin, the Cro-Magnon Man, also a regular feature in film and speculative fiction, more often depicted as a cave painter than a cave dweller, however. Interestingly, the popular images of the caveman and the Neanderthal, perhaps best exemplified in the remarkable images by the Czech painter Zdenek Burian, owe a great deal to the mythological medieval imagery of the wild man, or Homo Silvestris, a hairy, club-wielding, and skin-clad brute living on the wild edges of civilization a much earlier version of which we find in the Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh in the character of Enkidu. Before we continue into our discussion on how science and speculative fiction have used apes, ape-men, cavemen, and similar creatures as mirrors for humanity, it is first necessary to step back and look at several aspects of western thought regarding man and his origins, which continue to subtly influence our post-darwinian narratives and depictions of both human origins and human society. Both currents date back to antiquity. On the one hand, there is the idea of an idyllic golden age of peace and prosperity from which modern man has fallen or degenerated. The idea of the ages of man appears in Hesiod's works and days in the 7th century BC. In medieval Europe, the idea became intertwined with biblical conceptions of man's place in the Garden of Eden and was the inspiration for pastoral art and poetry as well. In Enlightenment Europe, this idea found itself reborn in the idea of the noble savage and romantic conceptions of non-European peoples. The philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau famously argued that humanity had originally existed in a state of nature characterized by peace and innocence. There are strong elements of primitivism in many popular depictions of early human beings as well as of indigenous hunter-gatherers in which their relationship to nature and the world around them is characterized as fundamentally more noble and good than that of modern urban society. In countercurrent to this primitivist strain of Western thought, there is the contrasting idea that modern society represents progress from a primitive origin in which man existed as a brute and primitive savage. This view was best portrayed by the Roman poet Lucretius in his poem The Nature of Things. He presented primitive man as strong and hardy, sleeping naked like a beast on the ground and hunting with stones and clubs. A contemporary of Lucretius, the Roman architect Vitruvius, also presented a naturalistic approach to the origins of humanity. The men of old, he wrote, were born like the wild beasts, in woods, caves, and groves, and lived on savage fare. He gives great emphasis to the discovery of fire, an emphasis we find again in Daroni's quest for fire and many other depictions of early man. Vitruvius describes how trees catch fire in a storm, and that after the terrifying fire subsides, the inhabitants of the place approach the fire for warmth, and that this social gathering provided the impetus for the evolution of speech. This brutish view of early human nature finds itself summarized in the Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes when he describes the life of early man as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. It is this view of humanity that is evidenced by the famous scene in 2001, which I described earlier. The scene is a visual representation of the killer ape hypothesis, originally propounded by Raymond Dart in the 1950s, and popularized in Robert Ardrey's 1961 classic African Genesis. The killer ape hypothesis, now largely discredited, held that warfare and interpersonal aggression were the primary factors in early hominid development. Thus, to reiterate so far, we have two great strains of Western thinking regarding the origins of man and human society prior to Darwin. On the one hand the romantic vision of the noble savage, and on the other hand, the short, nasty, and brutish savage primitive. And so we come again to Darwin. At the same time that the Darwinian revolution was taking off, the science of prehistory was too, and for many of the same reasons. The geologic theories of James Hutton and Charles Lyell, which gave rise to the conception of deep time, of a truly ancient earth, made both the science of evolution, as well as the scientific study of human prehistory possible. Already in the 1830s, Jacques Boucher de Perth, a French archaeologist, had discovered flint tools in geologic deposits of the Somme Valley. He argued that these were evidence of the great antiquity of man, though the scientific methods to accurately situate the tools were not available to him. Today, they are considered to be about 500,000 years old and probably the work of Neanderthal man. And, appropriately enough, it is here that science fiction enters the picture, and the ape-man of popular imagination is born. In 1861, shortly after the publication of Charles Darwin's The Origin of the Species, Pierre Boitard's book, Paris Avant les Hommes, or Paris Before Men, became a popular success. Aimed at an adolescent and young adult market, it describes an imaginary ape-like ancestor of modern man. Aimed at an adolescent and young adult market, it describes an imaginary ape-like ancestor of modern man. It also has a frequently reproduced frontispiece, which features an archetypal ape-like caveman guarding with a stone axe his cave in which cowers a female and her child. Wattar's book, though largely forgotten, is notable because it gave birth to an entire genre of science and speculative fiction, the prehistoric novel. Nicholas Ruddock, author of The Fire in the Stone, prehistoric fiction from Charles Darwin to Jean M. Aul, defines prehistoric fiction as a speculative fiction genre dependent on extrapolations from scientific or quasi-scientific discourse. Prehistoric fiction really began in France. In the late 19th century, two Belgian brothers, writing under the joint pseudonym J. H. Roney, began writing a series of prehistoric novels, the most famous of which, Quest for Fire, was published in 1911. Many of you may have seen the 1981 film adaptation by Jean-Jacques Annaud, starring among others Ron Perlman as a Neanderthal. Prehistoric fiction made its appearance in English in the 1890s, and it has remained a popular subgenre of science and speculative fiction ever since. And many well-known authors, including H. G. Wells with his story of the Stone Age and Jack London with *Before Adam*, have contributed to this genre. Authors such as Isaac Asimov and Frederick Pohl have also contributed to the genre, and of course there's the aforementioned Jean M. All, whose Earth Children started a popular wave of prehistoric fiction in the 1980s. There are many types of prehistoric literature, and not all are set in the Paleolithic or Stone Age. Some are set in the Neolithic period, and others depict the lives of indigenous peoples such as American Indians prior to colonization and conquest. Others belong to a major subgenre characterized by Mark Angino and Nadia Curie, who published a well-known bibliography of prehistoric fiction, as the ape-man or savage-man tale. This type of story features the regression or transformation of man into a simian form, or the mutation or transformation of an ape into a kind of man, frequently, though not always, as a degraded human being. There are numerous examples of this type of narrative, both in science fiction literature and film, and I might also mention the popular, satirical, and very funny novel by Will Self, Great Apes. Another example comes from Ken Russell's Altered States, based on the novel and screenplay by Patty Chayefsky, in which Edward Jessup, played by William Hurt, partakes in a series of sensory deprivation experiments while under the influence of mind-altering drugs. These experiments lead to an actual physical devolution of Jessup, and in one memorable scene he bursts from the isolation tank as a primitive man and runs amok while not prehistoric fiction david brin's uplift series features among other things dolphins and chimpanzees or rather neodolphins and neochimpanzees which have been uplifted that is they have been brought to sentience by a program of genetic engineering by human beings and brin creates one of my favorite characters from science fiction the chimpanzee scientist charles dart A work which does not exactly fit in this category, but which shares important elements with it, is Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs, who notably also wrote some pulp prehistoric fiction. Tarzan, or Lord Greystoke, is raised by a band of savage and wholly imaginary anthropoids, with a primitive language and a propensity to wild, cannibalistic rituals. The books are full of reflections on ape and man, as well as popular and racist notions of the time regarding Africans and Europeans, which offer an interesting insight into popular notions of evolution and human nature. In one remarkable scene, Tarzan sees himself for the first time. In the higher land which his tribe frequented was a little lake, and it was here that Tarzan first saw his face in the clear, still waters of its bosom. It was on a sultry day of the dry season that he and one of his cousins had gone down to the bank to drink. As they leaned over, both little faces were mirrored in the placid pool, the fierce and terrible features of the ape, besides those of the aristocratic scion of an old English house. Tarzan was appalled. It had been bad enough to be hairless, but to own such a countenance, he wondered that the other apes could look at him at all. Of course, this is before Tarzan has realized his clear superiority over the band of apes, as well as over the cannibalistic African tribe that later encroaches on his territory. Pulpiness and naive racism aside, however, the book remains an exciting adventure tale, and it is no wonder that it sparked the production of over 40 films, though of course the most famous feature the smooth-muscled and yodeling Johnny Weissmuller and his partner Jane, played by Maureen O'Sullivan. The book, and the movies as well, are excellent examples of popular American primitivism, that strain of Western thought regarding man and his place in nature, of which I spoke before. Another popular subgenre of prehistoric fiction is called The Lost World, best exemplified perhaps by the eponymous work of Arthur Conan Doyle. The 1933 film King Kong and later remakes and sequels are also classic examples of this type of story, featuring Skull Island, a mysterious island located somewhere off the coast of Sumatra and inhabited by superstitious and stereotyped natives, and giant prehistoric animals, and, of course, King Kong. There's a great scene in the movie Inglorious Bastards about King Kong, and Quentin Tarantino has this to say about it in a 2009 interview with Terry Gross on NPR's Fresh Air.
0: But that's one of the things that I love the most about when I do write film criticism and stuff is is uh, is getting into the the subtextual areas. And uh, I like it when, when text can be explored Believably in the course of a, in the course of a piece I like the fact that you know little film comment, sight and sound piece it just breaks up breaks out of the room and you know I think the the when they play the celebrity game in this movie the whole dissertation on what is underneath King Kong oh I, I love think that has, has one of those big has one of those big moments in it and it's interesting watching it uh, I've because I've seen it now in a few different countries that scene. And it's, it's, you know, and to me, it's very it's very interesting. I mean, to me, it's very obvious. I mean, of course, King Kong is a metaphor for the slave trade. I'm not saying the makers of King Kong meant it to be that way, but that's what that's the movie that they made, whether they meant to make it or not. To me, King Kong is, is, is a metaphor for America's fear of the black male. And to me, that's obvious. All right. So, uh, I mean, that was one of the first things I said when uh, I was talking to a friend of mine after he saw uh, Peter Jackson's. Uh, version of king kong and uh i said uh you know it, are, is there is the racial metaphors in there is the racial subtext in there and he goes no and i go well then that's just a story of a big monkey <laughs> what's that about
2: stephen trussell who maintains an informative and valuable website on prehistoric fiction divides the literature into three types pure mixed and anachronistic pure prehistoric fictions are set wholly in prehistory and do not involve interactions between the past and present, such as time travel. Anachronistic narratives include the lost world subgenre, and frequently involve time travel or other literary devices. Mixed narratives feature elements of both, and Trussell gives as an example the adaptation into a novel by Robert Silverberg of Asimov's short story, The Ugly Little Boy, which tells the story of a Neanderthal child brought into the future. In Silverberg's adaptation, He introduces chapters which tell the story of the Neanderthal tribe from whom the boy was taken, so an otherwise anachronistic narrative has elements of the pure inserted into it and becomes mixed. Another good example of anachronistic prehistoric fiction would be The Mists of Time by Chad Oliver, of which Amy H. Sturgis spoke in her most recent A Look Back at Genre History. Of course, one of the prime examples of the use of apes to mirror humans and human society is The Planet of the Apes. The book was written in 1963 by Pierre Boulle, a French author better known perhaps for his work The Bridge Over the River Kwai, and is a kind of comedy of manners as well as social satire and has many interesting comments on evolution as well as comments on our treatment of animals and particularly of apes. The 1968 movie, with a screenplay by Rod Serling and Michael Wilson and directed by Franklin Schaffner, became a huge success and spawned a series of sequels, as well as two television series and a remake, or reimagination, by Tim Burton in 2001. The movie, Transposed to a Future Earth, the book takes place on a distant planet, becomes a complex social commentary on both evolution and our attitudes towards it, as exemplified by the scene in which Taylor, played of course by Charlton Heston, is put on trial by Dr. Zayas to determine his origin, in a kind of parody of the Scopes Monkey Trial, which also has elements of the Inquisition's trial of Galileo. But more importantly, the movies also become, both implicitly and explicitly, a commentary on race relations in America, race relations being, interestingly, an element which the books do not focus on. In his excellent work, The Planet of the Apes as American Myth, Race, Politics, and Popular Culture, Eric Green analyzes the ape movies from this perspective, pointing out, for example, the scene where Taylor is held back in his cell with a hose by a guerrilla guard, in a scene sure to evoke, particularly in 1968, images from the civil rights movement. And, of course, more generally, the movies are a kind of mirror of 1960s and 70s America. In a 1971 interview, director Franklin J. Schaffner remarks, "'It must occur to you, as you are watching an ape society, "'that you are looking in a mirror.' That's the purpose of the picture, that the human Moors are no different from that of the ape Society, and they are fairly ridiculous, and a lot of our Moors, habits, customs, attitudes, etc. are pretty ridiculous. Indeed, while race relations are a major component of the Apes movies, they are also a critique of the establishment and political authority, religious fundamentalism, official science, and war. As Eric Green writes, By projecting the cataclysmic results of U.S. politics, the Apes movies act as prophetic fiction, warning of racial revolution, ecological devastation, and nuclear annihilation should the United States not change its path. The Planet of the Apes remains a popular franchise and has been parodied often, as, for example, in The Simpsons. And, of course, there are these fabulous lines given us in true overacting style by Charlton Heston. Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! And here again in the classic ending. You maniacs! You blew it up! Ah, oh, damn you! God! While writing this installment, I took the opportunity to re-watch the original Planet of the Apes, which I had not seen since I was a child, and I was impressed with how remarkably well it had aged. I highly recommend, if you have not seen the original, to watch it. While Planet of the Apes' is science fiction may seem entirely different from a paleo-fiction work such as Gene M. All's Clan of the Cave Bear and the Earth Children books with their attempt to present a scientifically accurate image of the Paleolithic, it should also be noted that all's works are also social commentary. One of the reasons for their popularity is the strong feminist subtext and the strong female heroine, though we have scant evidence at best to speculate about gender relations in prehistory. That works such as these have a strong element of social commentary on modern society should not surprise us, for whether we turn our attention to the scientific studies of ape behavior by Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, Richard Wrangham, and Franz Duval or the representation of apes, ape apemen, cavemen, or, as we have recently had two wonderful examples on Starship Sofa from Kim Stanley Robinson and James Morrow, of the Yeti, what we are seeing is the ape in the looking glass. This has been another installment of Life, the Universe, and Everything, Reflections on Science, Science Fiction, and Philosophy. I'm Morgan Saletta. And before I sign out, I'd like to leave you with Just a little taste of paleo-primitivism, in this case from the 1981 album Psychedelic Jungle by The Cramps. And of course, this and all the other audio that I have used in this installment are used according to the principles and guidelines of the fair use policy. The song, Caveman. Caveman! Morgan Saleta signing out. Morgan, what can I say?
3: It's just like jumping into a rabbit hole. Thank you so much. You just don't know where these are gonna go. Honestly, thank you. So next up is main fiction and it comes from Kaelin R. Kieran. Caitlin R. Kieran was born in Dublin, Ireland, but moved over to the United States, the author of many science fiction and dark fantasy works. I'll give you a little list of her novels. In 1998 she had Silk, then came Threshold, The Five Cups, Low Red Moon, Murder of Angels, Daughter of Hounds, Beowulf, The Red Tree and The Drowning Girl, A Memory, forthcoming in 2012 by Penguin Putnam short story collections tales of the pain and wonder wrong things with poppy z bright that's a great title for a book that to charles Fault with love subterranean press frog toes and tentacles that's another one that's excellent alabaster tales from the woeful Pat- platypus i can't get that word out <laughs> i'll put a link on to caitlin's website She's had short fiction selected for the year's best fantasy and horror series, the mammoth book of best new horror and the year's best science fiction. To date her work's being translated into Germany, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, Finnish, Czech, Polish, Russia, Korean and Japanese. In nineteen ninety six she was approached by Neil Gaiman and editors of the DC Vertigo Comics and began writing The Dreaming. This is a spin-off from Gaiman's very successful The Sandman. She has been kind of pigeonholed, as being characterised as a horror writer Though she's kind of repeatedly and adamantly rejected this You can find an example of that, what she writes in a blog in 2002 She says, I'm getting tired of people saying that I'm a horror writer I'm getting tired of them not listening Well, this is just a fantastic story as well This is not a horror story at all This story came out in Eclipse 3 This is the book edited by Jonathan Strawn. Again, Nightshade Books this Eclipse series that Nightshade Books is putting out is just something special. I'll give you a little heads up what else is in that book. Curran Joy Fowler is in there, Pat Cadigan, Elizabeth Bear, Jeffrey Ford, Nicola Griffith. It t- we've played that one, It Takes Two. Daniel Abraham, Paul de Molly Gloss, Ellen Kushner, among others. Do look out for that, I'll put a link on to that book as well from Nightshade Books. This story is narrated by the fantastic Amy H. Sturges. What a... F- Amy, what a cracking narration this is. I just listened to this and it just takes you away. That's exactly what you want in a story, a story narration. This is what we are kind of been preaching in the, the workshop that we did as well. You just the, the listener just wants to be transported away and Amy just hits the mark so much. So proud of her. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
5: Galapagos by Caitlin R. Kiernan March Seventeen. 2077, Wednesday. Whenever I wake up screaming, the nurses kindly come in and give me the shiny yellow pills and the white pills flecked with gray. They prick my skin with hollow needles until I grow quiet and calm again. They speak in exquisitely gentle voices, reminding me that I'm home, that I've been home for many, many months. They remind me that if I open the blinds and look out the hospital window, I will see a parking lot and cars and a carefully tended lawn. I will only see California. I will only see Earth. If I look up, and it happens to be day, I'll see the sky, too, sprawled blue above me and peppered with dirty white clouds and contrails. If it happens to be night, instead, I'll see the comforting pale orange sky glow that mercifully hides the stars from view. I'm home not strapped into Yastrab 4s taxi module. I can't crane my neck for a glance at the monitor screen displaying a tableau of dusty volcanic wastelands as I speed by the Tharsis Plateau, more than 400 kilometers below me. I can't turn my head and gaze through the tiny docking windows at Pilgrimage's glittering alabaster hull, quickly growing larger as I rush towards the aft docking port. These are merely memories inaccurate and untrustworthy and may only do me the harm that memories are capable of doing. Then the nurses go away. They leave the light above my bed burning and tell me if I need anything at all to press the intercom button. They're just down the hall and they always come when I call. They're never anything except prompt and do not fail to arrive bearing the chemical solace of pharmaceuticals only half of which I know by name. I am not neglected. My needs are met as well as anyone alive can meet them. I'm too precious a commodity not to coddle. I'm the woman who was invited to the strangest, most terrible rendezvous in the history of space exploration, the one they dragged all the way to Mars after pilgrimage abruptly, inexplicably diverged from its mission parameters. When the crew went silent... And the A.I. stopped responding. I'm the woman who stepped through an airlock hatch and into that alien Eden. I'm the one who spoke with a goddess. I'm the woman who was the goddess's lover when she was still human and had a name and a consciousness that could be comprehended. Are you sleeping better? The psychiatrist asks. And I tell him that I sleep just fine, thank you, seven to eight hours every night now. He nods and patiently smiles, but I know I haven't answered his questions. He's actually asking me if I'm still having the nightmares about my time aboard pilgrimage, if they've decreased in their frequency and or severity. He doesn't want to know if I sleep or how long I sleep, but if my sleep is still haunted, though he'd never use that particular word, haunted. He's a thin, balding man with perfectly manicured nails, and an unremarkable mid-Atlantic accent. He dutifully makes the commute down from Berkeley once a week, because those are his orders, and I'm too great a puzzle for his inquisitive mind to ignore. All in all, I find the psychiatrist far less helpful than the nurses and their dependable drugs, whereas they've been assigned the task of watching over me, of soothing and steadying me and keeping me from harming myself, He's been given the unenviable responsibility of discovering what happened during the comms blackout, those 17 interminable minutes after I boarded the derelict ship and promptly lost radio contact with Yostreb-4 and Earth. Despite so many debriefings and interviews that I've lost count, NASA still thinks I'm holding out on them. And maybe I am. Honestly, it's hard for me to say. It's hard for me to keep it all straight anymore, what happened and what didn't, what I've said to them and what I've only thought about saying, what I genuinely remember, and what I may have fabricated wholesale as a means of self-preservation. The psychiatrist says it's to be expected, this sort of confusion from someone who survived very traumatic events. He calls the events very traumatic, by the way, I don't. I'm not yet sure if I think of them that way. Regardless, he's described me as suffering from Survivor Syndrome, which he also calls KZ Syndrome. There's a Jack in my hospital room, filtered web access, but I was able to look up KZ Syndrome. It was named for a Nazi concentration camp survivor, an Israeli author named Yehil Denur. Denur published under the pseudonym Katsetnik 135633. That was his designation, or prisoner number, or whatever, at Auschwitz, and KZ syndrome is named after him. In 1956, he published House of Dolls, describing the Nazi Joy Division, a system that utilized Jewish women as sex slaves. The psychiatrist is the one who asks if I would at least try to write it down, what happened, what I saw and heard and smelled and felt, "'when I entered the pilgrimage a year and a half ago. "'He knows, of course, that there have already been "'numerous written and vitted depositions and affidavits "'for NASA and the CSS and SA, the WHO, the CDC, and the CIA. "'And, to tell the truth, I don't know who requested and read "'and then filed away all those reports. "'He knows about them, though, and that, by my own admission, "'They barely scratched the surface of whatever happened out there. "'He knows, but I reminded him anyway. "'This will be different,' he said. "'This will be more subjective. "'And the psychiatrist explained that he wasn't looking for a blow-by-blow "'linear narrative of my experiences aboard pilgrimage. "'And I told him that was good, because I seemed to have forgotten how to think "'or relate events in a linear fashion.' Without a lot of switchbacks and digressions and meandering. Just write, he said. Write what you can remember, and write until you don't want to write anymore. That would be now? I said, and he silently stared at me for a while. He didn't laugh, even though I'd thought it was pretty funny. I understand that the medication makes this sort of thing more difficult for you, he said sometime later. But the medication helps you reach back to those things you don't want to remember, those things you're trying to forget. I almost told him that he was starting to sound like a character in a Lewis Carroll story, but I didn't. Our hour was almost over, anyway. So, after three days of stalling, I'm trying to write something that will make you happy, Dr. Ostrowski. I know you're trying to do your job, and I know a lot of people must be peering over your shoulder, expecting the sort of results they've failed to get themselves. I don't want to show up for our next session empty-handed. The taxi module was on autopilot during the approach. See, I'm not an astronaut or mission specialist or engineer or anything like that. I'm an anthropologist, and I mostly study the Middle Paleolithic of Europe and Asia Minor, I have a keen interest in tool use and manufacture by the Neanderthals. Or at least, that's who I used to be. Right now, I'm a madwoman in a psych ward at a military hospital in San Jose, California. I'm a case number and an eyewitness who has proven less than satisfactory. But what I'm trying to say, Doctor, the module was on autopilot. And there was nothing for me to do but wait there inside my encounter suit and sweat and watch the round screen divided by Y-shaped reticle as I approached the derelict's docking port, the taxi barreling forward at 0.06 meters per second. The ship grew so huge, so quickly, looming up in the blackness, and that only made the whole thing seem that much more unreal. I tried hard to focus, to breathe slowly and follow the words being spoken between the painful, bright bursts of static in my ears, the babble of sound trapped inside the helmet with me. Module approaching 50-meter threshold, on target and configuring KU band from radar to comms mode, slowing now to 0.045 meters per second, decelerating for angular alignment, Extending docking ring, nine meters, three meters, a whole lot of noise and nonsense about latches and hooks and seals, capture in final position. And then it seemed like I wasn't moving anymore, like the taxi wasn't moving anymore. We were, of course, the little module and I, only now we were riding piggyback on pilgrimage, locked into geosynchronous orbit, with nothing but the instrument panel to remind me I wasn't sitting still in space. Then the mission commander was telling me I'd done a great job. Congratulations, they were all proud of me, even though I hadn't done anything except sit and wait. "'But all this is right there in the mission dossiers, Doctor. You don't need me to tell you these things.' You already know that Pilgrimage's A.I. would allow no one but me to dock, and that M.S. Lowry's repeated attempts to hack the firewall failed. You know about the nurses and their pills, and Yeheel Denure and House of Dolls. You know about the affair I had with the Korean payload specialist during the long flight to Mars. You're probably skimming this part, hoping it gets better a little farther along. So, I'll try to tell you something, You don't know. Just one thing, for now. Hanging there in my tiny, life-sustaining capsule, suspended 250 miles above extinct Martian volcanoes and surrounded by near-vacuum, I had two recurring thoughts, the only ones that I can now clearly recall having had. First, the grim hope that, when the hatch finally opened if the hatch opened, they'd all be dead. All of them. Every single one of the men and women aboard the pilgrimage, and most especially her. And secondly, I closed my eyes as tightly as I could and wished that I would soon discover there'd been some perfectly mundane accident or malfunction. And the bizarre, garbled transmissions that had sent us all the way to Mars to try and save the day meant nothing at all. But I only hoped and wished, mind you. I haven't prayed since I was 14 years old. March 19, 2077. Friday. Last night was worse than usual. The dreams, I mean. The nurses and my physicians don't exactly approve of what I've begun writing for you, Dr. Ostrowski, of what you've asked me to do. I suspect they would say there's a conflict of interest at work. They're supposed to keep me sane and healthy. But here you are, the latest episode in the Inquisition that's landed me in their ward. When I asked for the keypad this afternoon, they didn't want to give it to me. Maybe tomorrow, they said. Maybe the day after tomorrow. Right now, you need your rest. And sure, I know they're right. What you want, it's only making matters worse, for them and for me. But when I'd finally had enough and threatened to report the hospital staff for attempting to obstruct a federal investigation, they relented. But just so you know, they've got me doped to the gills with an especially potent cocktail of tranquilizers and antipsychotics So I'll be lucky if I can manage more than gibberish. Already it's taken me half an hour to write, and repeatedly rewrite, this one paragraph. So who gets the final laugh? Last night, I dreamed of the cloud again. I dreamed I was back in Germany, in Darmstadt. Only this time, I wasn't sitting in that dingy hotel room near the Lusenplatz. This time, it wasn't a phone call that brought me the news, or a courier, and I didn't look up to find her standing there in the room with me, which, you know, is how this one usually goes. I'll be sitting on the bed, or I'll walk out of the bathroom, or turn away from the window, and there she'll be, even though Pilgrimage and its crew is all those hundreds of millions of kilometers away, finishing up their experiments at Ganymede and preparing to begin the long journey home. She's standing there in the room, with me. Only, not this time, not last night. The way it played out last night, I'd been cleared for access to the ESOC central control room. I have no idea why, but I was there, standing near one wall with a young Frenchwoman, younger than me by at least a decade. She was blonde, with green eyes, and she was pretty. Her English was better than my French, I watched all those men and women, too occupied with their computer terminals, to notice me. The pretty Frenchwoman, sorry but I never learned her name— was pointing out different people, explaining their various roles— the ground operations manager, the director of flight operations, a visiting astrodynamics consultant, the software coordinator, and so forth. The lights in the room were almost painfully bright, and when I looked up at the ceiling— I saw it wasn't a ceiling at all, but the night sky, blazing with countless fluorescent stars. And then, that last transmission from pilgrimage came in. We didn't realize it would be the last, but everything stopped, and everyone listened. Afterwards, no one panicked, as if they'd expected something of this sort all along. I understood that it had taken the message the better part of an hour to reach earth and that any reply would take just as long. But the Frenchwoman was explaining the communications delay, anyway. "'We can't know what that means,' somebody said. "'We can't possibly know, can we?' "'Run through the telemetry data again,' someone else said, and I think it was the man the Frenchwoman had told me was the director of flight operations. But it might have been someone else. I was still looking at the ceiling composed of starlight and planets— and the emptiness between starlight and planets, and I knew exactly what the transmission meant. It was a suicide note of sorts, streamed across space at 300 kilometers per second. I knew, because I plainly saw the mile-long silhouette of the ship sailing by overhead, only a silvery speck against the roiling backdrop of Jupiter. I saw that cloud, too, saw Pilgrimage enter it, and exit a minute or so later, and I think I even paused to calculate the width of the cloud based on the vessel's speed. You know as well as me what was said that day, Dr. Ostrowski, the contents in that final broadcast. You've probably even committed it to memory, just like I have. I imagine you've listened to the tape more times than you could ever recollect, right? Well, What was said in my dream last night was almost verbatim what Commander Yun had said in the actual transmission. There was only one difference. The part right at the end, when the Commander quotes from Chapter 13 of the Book of Revelation? That didn't happen. Instead, he said, Lead us from the unreal to real. Lead us from darkness to light. Lead us from death to immortality. Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. I admit I had to look that up online. It's from the Hindu Brahidran Yaka Upanishad. I haven't studied Vedic literature since a seminar in grad school, and that was mostly an excuse to visit Bangalore. But the unconscious doesn't lose much, does it, doctor? And you never know what it's going to cough up, or when. In my dream... I stood staring at the ceiling that was really no ceiling at all. If anyone else could see what I was seeing, they didn't act like it. The strange cloud near Ganymede made me think of an oil slick floating on water, and when pilgrimage came out the far side, it was like those dying seabirds that wash up on beaches after tanker spills. That's exactly how it seemed to me in the dream last night. I looked away, finally, looked down at the floor and I was trying to explain what I'd seen to the Frenchwoman. I described the ruined plumage of ducks and gulls and cormorants, but I couldn't make her understand. And then I woke up. I woke up screaming. But you'll have guessed that part. I need to stop now. The meds have made this almost impossible, and I should read back over everything I've written, do what I can to make myself clearer, I feel like I ought to say more about the cloud because I've never seen it so clearly in any of the other dreams. It never before reminded me of an oil slick. I'll try to come back to this. Maybe later. Maybe not. March 20, 2077. Saturday. I don't have to scream for the nurses to know that I'm awake, of course. I don't have to scream, and I don't have to use the call button either. They get everything relayed in real time, directly from my cerebral cortex and hippocampus to their wrist tops via the depth electrodes and subdural strips that were implanted in my head a few weeks after the crew of Yastreb 4 was released from the suborbital quarantine. They see it all, spelled out in the spikes and waves of electrocorticography, which is how I know they know that I'm awake right now, when I should be asleep. Tomorrow morning, I imagine there will be some sort of confab about adjusting the levels of my benzo and non-benzo hypnotics to ensure the insomnia doesn't return. I'm not sure why I'm awake, really. There wasn't a nightmare, at least none I can recall. I woke up and simply couldn't get back to sleep. After ten or fifteen minutes, I reached for the keypad. I find this soft cobalt-blue glow from the screen is oddly soothing, and it's nice to find comfort that isn't injected, something that I don't have to swallow or get from a jet spray or IV drip, and I want to have something more substantial to show the psychiatrist come Tuesday than dreams about Darmstadt, oil slicks, and pretty French women. I keep expecting the vidcom beside my bed to buzz and wink to life, "'and there will be one of the nurses looking concerned "'and wanting to know if I'm all right "'if I'd like a little extra Kobe to help me get back to sleep. "'But the box has been quiet and blank so far, "'which leaves me equal parts surprised and relieved. "'There are things you've yet to tell anyone,' the psychiatrist said. "'Those are the things I'm trying to help you talk about. "'If they've been repressed, "'they're the memories I'm trying to help you access.' That is, they're what he's going to want to see when I give him the disc on Tuesday morning. And if at first I don't succeed... So, where was I? The handoff. I'm sitting alone in the taxi, waiting, and below me, Mars is a sullen, rusty cadaver of a planet. I have the distinct impression that it's watching as I'm handed off from one ship to the other... I imagine those countless craters and calderas have become eyes, and all those eyes are filled with jealousy and spite. The module's capture ring has successfully snagged Pilgrimage's aft PMA, and it only takes a few seconds for the ring to achieve proper alignment. The module deploys twenty or so hooks, establishing an impermeable seal, and, a few seconds later, The taxi's hatch spirals open, and I enter the airlock. I feel dizzy, slightly nauseous, and I almost stumble, almost fall. I see a red light above the hatch go blue and realize that the chamber has pressurized, which means I'm subject to the centripetal force that generates the ship's artificial gravity. I've been living in near-zero-g for more than eleven months and nothing they told me in training or aboard the Yastrub 4 could have prepared me for that sensation. The EVA suit's exoskeleton begins to compensate. It keeps me on my feet, keeps my atrophied muscles moving, keeps me breathing. You're doing great, Commander Yun assures me from the bridge of Yastrub 4, and that's when my comms cut out. I panic and try to return to the taxi module, but the hatchway has already sealed itself shut again. I have a go at the control panel, my gloved fingers fumbling clumsily at the unfamiliar switches, but can't get it to respond. The display on the inside of my visor tells me that my heart rates jumped to 186 BPM. My blood pressure's in the red, and oxygen consumption has doubled. I'm hyperventilating, which has my CO2 down and is beginning to affect blood oxygen levels. The med tab on my left wrist responds by secreting a relatively mild anxiolytic compound directly into the radial artery. Milder, I might add, than the shit they give me here. And yes, Dr. Ostrowski, I know that you've read all this before. I know that I'm trying your patience and you're probably disappointed, but I'm doing this the only way I know how. I was never any good at jumping into the deep end of the pool, but we're almost there. A promise. It took me a year and a half to find the words to describe what happened next, or to find the courage to say it aloud, or the resignation necessary to let it into the world. Whichever. They've been my secrets, and almost mine alone. And soon, now, they won't be anymore. The soup from the med tab hits me, and I begin to Relax. I give up on the airlock and shut my eyes for a moment, leaning forward, my helmet resting against the closed hatch. I'm almost certain my eyes are still shut when the pilgrimage's A.I. first speaks to me. And here, doctor, right here, pay attention, because this is where I'm going to come clean and tell you something I've never told another living soul. It's not a repressed memory that suddenly found its way to the surface. It hasn't been coaxed from me by all those potent psychotropics. It's just something I've managed to keep to myself until now. Hello, the computer says. Only, I'd heard recordings of the mainframe's NLP, and this isn't the voice it was given. This is, unmistakably, her voice, only slightly distorted by the audio interface. My eyes are shut, and I don't open them right away. I just stand there, my head against the hatch, listening to that voice and to my heart. The sound of my breath is very loud inside the helmet. We were not certain our message had been received, or, if it had, that it had been properly understood. We did not expect you would come so far. Then why did you call? I asked. "'and opened my eyes. "'We were lonely,' the voice replied. "'We have not seen you in a very long time now. "'I don't turn around. "'I keep my faceplate pressed to the airlock, "'some desperate, insensible part of me "'willing it to reopen and admit me "'once more to the sanctuary of the taxi. "'Whatever I should say next, "'of all the things I might say, "'what I do say was simply, Amory, I'm frightened.' There is a pause before her response, five or six or seven seconds, I don't know, and my fingers move futilely across the control pad again. I hear the inner hatch open behind me, though I'm fairly certain I'm not the one who opened it. "'We see that,' she says. "'But it wasn't our intention to make you afraid, Merrick.' It was never our intent to frighten you. "'Hey, Marie, what's happened here?' I ask, speaking hardly above a whisper, but my voice is amplified and made clearer by the vocal modulator in my EVA helmet. "'What's happened to the ship back at Jupiter, to the rest of the crew? What's happened to you?' I expect another pause, but there isn't one. "'The most remarkable thing,' she replies." And there's a sort of joy in her voice, even through the tinny flatness of the NLP relay. You will hardly believe it. Are they dead, the others? I ask her, and my eyes wander to the external Atmo readout inside my visor, Argon's showing a little high, a few tenths of a percent off Earth normal, but not enough to act as an asphyxiant. Water vapors twice what I'd have expected— Anywhere but the ship's hydroponics lab. Pressure's steady at 14.2 PSI. Whatever happened aboard pilgrimage, life support is still up and running. All the numbers are in the green. That's not a simple question to answer, she says. Amory or the AI or whatever it is I'm having this conversation with. None of it is simple, Merrick. And yet, it is... So elegant. Are they dead? I ask again, resisting the urge to flip the release toggle beneath my chin and raise the visor. It stinks inside the suit, like sweat and plastic, urine and stale, recycled air. Yes, she says. It couldn't be helped. I lick my lips, Dr. Ostrowski, and my mouth has gone very, very dry. Did you kill them, Amory? You're asking the wrong questions, she says, and I stare down at my feet, at the shiny white toes of the EVA's overshoes. They're the questions we've come all the way out here to have answered. I tell her, or I tell it. What questions would you have me ask instead? It may be. There is no longer any need for questions. It may be, Merrick... That you've been called to see, and seeing will be enough. The force that through the green fuse drives the flower, drives my green age, that blasts the roots of trees, is my destroyer. I've been summoned to Mars to listen to you quote Dylan Thomas. You're not listening, Merrick. That's the thing, and that's why it will be so much easier if we show you what's happened, what's begun. And I am dumb to tell the lover's tomb, I say, as softly as I can, but the suit adjusts the volume, so it's just as loud as everything else I've said. We have not died, she replies. You will find no tomb here. And possibly... This voice that wants me to believe it's only Amory D'Amico has become defensive and impatient, and somehow this seems the strangest thing so far. I imagine Amory speaking through clenched teeth. I imagine her rubbing her forehead like a headache's coming on, and it's my fault. "'I am very much alive,' she says, "'and I need you to pay attention. "'You cannot stay here very long.' "'It's not safe, and I will see no harm come to you.' "'Why?' I ask her, only half expecting a response. "'Why isn't it safe for me to be here?' "'Turn around, Merrick,' she says. "'You've come so far, and there is so little time.' "'I do as she says. "'I turn towards the voice, toward the airlock's open inner hatch.' It's almost morning. I mean, the sun will be rising soon, here in California. Still no interruption from the nurses. But I can't keep this up. I can't do this all at once. The rest will have to wait. March 21, 2077. Sunday. Dr. Bernardin Ostrowski is no longer handling my case. One of my physicians delivered the news this morning, bright and early. It came with no explanation attached. I thought better of asking for one. That is, I thought better of wasting my breath asking for one. When I signed on for the Yastrub 4 intercept, the waivers and NDAs and whatnot were all very, very clear about things, like the principle of least privilege and mandatory access control. I'm told what they decide I need to know, which isn't much. I did ask if I should continue with the account of the mission that Dr. O asked me to write, and the physician, a hematologist named Prideaux, said he'd gotten no word to the contrary— And if there would be a change in the direction of my psychotherapy regimen, I'd find out about it when I meet with the new shrink Tuesday morning. Her name is Teasdale, by the way. Eleanor Teasdale. I thanked Dr. Prudeau for bringing me the news, and he only shrugged and scribbled something on my chart. I suppose that's fair, as it was hardly a sincere show of gratitude on my part— At any rate, I have no idea what to expect from this Teasdale woman, and I appear to have lost the stingy drab of momentum pushing me recklessly towards full disclosure. That in and of itself is enough to set me wondering what my keepers are up to now, if the shrink switch is some fresh skull uggery. It seems counterintuitive, given they were finally getting the results they've been asking for. And I'm not so naive as to assume that this pad isn't outfitted with a direct patch to some agency goon or another. But then an awful lot of what they've done seems counterintuitive to me, and counterproductive. Simply put, I don't know what to say next. No, strike that, I don't know what I'm willing to say next. I've already mentioned my indiscretion with the South Korean payload specialist on the outbound half of the trip. Actually, indiscretion is hardly accurate, since Amory explicitly gave me her permission to take other lovers while she was gone, because, after all, there was a damn decent chance she wouldn't make it back alive. Or make it back at all. So, indiscretion is just my guilt talking. Anyway, her name was Bae The Yastreb for PS, I mean. Though everyone called her Sam, which she seemed to prefer. She was born in In Tung, and was still a kid when the war started. A relative in the States helped her parents get bay on one of the last transports out of Seoul before the bombs started raining down. But we didn't have many conversations about the past, mine or hers. She was a biochemist obsessed with the structure-function relationships of peptides, And she liked to talk shop after we fucked. It was pretty dry stuff. The talk, not the sex. And I admit I only half-listened and didn't understand all that much of what I heard. But I don't think that mattered to Sam. I have a feeling she was just grateful that I bothered to cover my mouth whenever I yawned. She only asked about Amory once. We were both crammed into the warm cocoon of her sleeping bag or into mine. I can't recall which probably mine, since the micrograv restraints in my bunk kept popping loose. I was on the edge of dozing off, and Sam asked me how we met. I made up some half-assed romance about an academic conference in Manhattan, and a party, a formal affair at the American Museum of Natural History. It was love at first sight, I said, or something equally ridiculous, right there in the Roosevelt Rotunda, beneath the rearing Barisara skeleton. "'Sam thought it was sweet as hell, though, "'and I figured lies were fine "'if they gave us a moment's respite "'from the crowded day-to-day monotony of the ship "'or from our usually unspoken dread "'of all that nothingness surrounding us "'and the uncertainty we were hurtling towards. "'I don't even know if she believed me, "'but it made her smile. "'You've read all the docks on the cloud?' she asked. And I told her, yeah, I had, or at least all the ones I was given clearance to read. And then Sam watched me for a while, without saying anything. I could feel her silently weighing options and consequences, duty and need and repercussion. So, you know it's some pretty spooky shit out there, she said, finally, and went back to watching me, as if waiting for some particular reaction. And here... I lied to her, again. "'Relax, Sam,' I whispered, then kissed her on the forehead. "'I've read most of the spectroscopy and astrochem profiles. Discussing it with me, you're not in danger of compromising protocol or mission security or anything.' She nodded once, and looked slightly relieved. "'I've never given much credence to the exogenesis crowd,' she said. "'But—' "'Jesus! Glycine?' DHA, adenine, cytosine, etc, and fucking, etc, when, or rather, if this gets out, the panspermia guys are going to go ape shit, and rightly so, no one saw this coming, Merrick. No one you'd ever take seriously. I must have managed a fairly convincing job of acting like I knew what she was talking about, because she kept it up for the next ten or fifteen minutes. Her voice took on that same sort of jittery, excited edge Amory's used to get when she'd start in on the role of Io in the Jovian magnetoscope or any number of other phenomena I didn't quite understand and how much the pilgrimage experiments were going to change this or that model or theory. Only Sam's excitement was tinged with fear. The inherent risks, she said, and then trailed off and wiped at her forehead before starting again. When they first showed me the back contamination safeguards for this run, I figured, no way, right? No way are NASA and the ESA going to pony up the budget for that sort of overkill. But this was before...
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing.
3: Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. I bet you get 30, 30, I bet you get 30, get 30, get 20, 20, 20, I bet you get 20, 20, I bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So Give it a
1: try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows Full turns at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
5: I read Murchison's report on the cloud's composition and behavior, and afterwards the thought of intentionally sending a human crew anywhere near that thing, or anything that had been exposed to it, I couldn't believe they were really serious. It's fucking crazy. No, it's whatever comes after fucking crazy. They should have cut their losses. And then she trailed off again and went back to staring at me. I had to come, I told her if there was any chance at all that Amory's still alive I had to come of course, yeah, of course you did Sam said looking away when they asked I couldn't very well say no but do you honestly believe we're going to find any of them alive that we'll be docking with anything but a ghost ship you're really not into pulling punches are you "'You read the reports on the cloud.' "'I had to come,' I told her again. "'Then we both let the subject drop, "'and neither of us ever brought it up again. "'Indeed, I thought I probably would have forgotten most of it, "'especially after what I saw "'when I stepped through the airlock and into pilgrimage. "'That whole conversation might have dissolved "'into the tedious, gray blur of outbound "'if Béjana hadn't killed herself.' on the return trip, just five days before we made Earth orbit. March 23, 2077. Tuesday. Tuesday night now, and the meds are making me sleepy and stupid, but I wanted to put some of this down, even if it isn't what they want me to be writing. I see how it's all connected, even if they never will, or if seeing... "'They simply do not care. "'They, whomever, precisely, they may be. "'This morning I had my first session with you, Dr. Eleanor Teasdale. "'I never much liked that bastard Ostrowski, "'but at least I was moderately certain he was who and what he claimed to be. "'Between you and I, Eleanor, "'I think you're an asset sent in because someone somewhere is getting nervous.' Nervous enough to swap an actual psychiatrist for a bug dressed up to pass for a psychiatrist. Fine, I'm flexible. If these are the new rules, I can play along. But it does leave me pondering what Dr. O was telling his superiors, whom I'll assume are also your superiors, Dr. T. It couldn't have been anything so simple as labeling me a suicide risk, They've known that since I stepped off pilgrimage, probably before I even stepped on. And yes, I've noticed that you bear more than a passing resemblance to Amory. That was a bold and wicked move, and I applaud these ruthless shock tactics. I do, sincerely. This merciless blitzkrieg waltz we're dancing, coupled with the drugs. It shows you're in this game to win. And if you can't win... You'll settle for the pyrrhic victory of having driven the enemy to resort to a scorched-earth retreat. Yeah, the pills and injections, they don't mesh so well with extended metaphor and simile, so I'll drop it. But I can't have you thinking all the theater has been wasted on an inattentive audience. That's all. You wear that rough facsimile of her face, Dr. T, and that annoying habit you have of tap-tap-tapping the business end of a stylus against your lower incisors... That's hers, too. And half a dozen carefully planted turns of phrase. The smile that isn't quite a smile. The self-conscious laugh. You hardly missed a trick. You and the agency handlers who sculpted you and slotted you and packed you off to play havoc with a lunatic's fading will. My mouth is so dry. Eleanor Teasdale watches me from the other side of her desk, and behind her, through the wide window twelve stories up, I can see the blue-brown sky, and between the steel and glass and concrete towers, I can just make out the scrubby hills of the Diablo Range through the smog. She glances over her shoulder, following my gaze. "'Quite a view, isn't it?' she asks, and maybe I nod, and maybe I agree." "'and maybe, I say, nothing at all. "'When I was a little girl,' she tells me, "'my father used to take me on long hikes through the mountains "'and would visit Lick Observatory on the top of Mount Hamilton. "'I'm not from around here,' I reply, "'but then I'd be willing to bet neither is she.' "'Eleanor Teesdale turns back towards me, "'silhouetted against the murky light through that window.' "'framed like a misplaced Catholic saint. "'She stares straight at me, "'and I do not detect even a trace of guile when she speaks. "'We all want you to get better, Miss Merrick. "'You know that, don't you?' "'I look away, preferring the oatmeal-colored carpet "'to that mask she wears. "'It's easier if we don't play games,' I say. "'Yes, yes, it is, obviously. "'What I saw, what I meant,' "'What she said to me? "'What I think it means? "'Yes, and talking about those things, "'bringing them out into the open. "'It's an important part of you getting better, Miss Merrick. "'Don't you think that's true?' "'I think... "'And I pause, choosing my words as carefully as I still am able. "'I think you're afraid, all of you, of never knowing. "'None of this is about my getting better. "'I've understood that almost from the start.' and my voice is calm, and there is no hint of bitterness for her to hear. My voice does not betray me. Eleanor Teasdale's smile wavers, but only a little, and only an instant or two. "'Naturally, yes, these matters are interwoven,' she replies, "'quite intricately so, almost inextricably, "'and I don't believe anyone has ever tried to lie to you about that, "'what you witnessed out there, what you seem unable or unwilling to share with anyone else.' I laugh, and she sits, watching me, with Amory's pale blue eyes, tapping a keypad stylus against her teeth. Her teeth are much wider and more even than Amory's were, and I draw some dim comfort from that. Share, I say, very softly, and there are other things I want to say to her, but I keep them to myself. I want you to think about that, Miss Merrick. Between now and our next session, I need you to consider, seriously, the price of your selfishness, both to your own well-being and to the rest of humanity. Fine, I say, because I don't feel like arguing. Besides, manipulative or not, she isn't entirely wrong. And what I was writing for Dr. Ostrowski, do I keep that up? Yes, please, she replies and glances at the clock on the wall as if she expects me to believe she'll be seeing anyone else today, that she even has other patients. It's a sound approach, and reviewing what you've written so far, it feels to me like you're close to a breakthrough. I nod my head and also look at the clock. Our time's almost up, I say, and she agrees with me, then looks over her shoulder again at the green-brown hills beyond San Jose. I have a question, I say. That's why I'm here, Dr. Eleanor Teasdale tells me, imbuing the words with all the false veracity of her craft. Having affected the role of the good patient, I pretend that she isn't lying, hoping the pretense lends weight to my question. Have they sent a retrieval team yet? To Mars? To the cabins on Arcea Mons? "'I wouldn't know that,' she says. "'I'm not privileged to such information. "'However, if you like, I can file an inquiry on your behalf. "'Someone with the agency might contact you.' "'No,' I reply. "'I was just curious if you knew.' "'And I almost ask her another question "'about Darwin's finches "'and the tortoises and mockingbirds and iguanas "'that once populated the Galapagos Islands. "'But then the black minute hand on the clock ticks forward.' Deleting another 60 seconds from the future, converting it to past, and I decide we've both had enough for one morning. Don't fret, Dr. T. You've done your bit for the cause, swept me off my feet, and now we're dancing. If you were here in the hospital room with me, I'd even let you lead. I really don't care if the nurses mind or not. I'd turn up the jack, find just the right tune, and dance with the ghost you've let them make of you. I can never be too haunted after all. Hush, hush. It's just they give me these drugs, you see, so I need to sleep for a while, and then the waltz can continue. Your answers are coming. March 24, 2077, Wednesday. It's raining. I ask one of the nurses to please raise the blinds in my room so I can watch the storm hammering the windowpane, pelting the glass, smudging my view of the diffident sky. I count off the moments between occasional flashes of lightning and the thunderclaps that follow. Storms number among the very few things remaining in all the world that can actually soothe my nerves. They certainly beat the synthetic opiates I'm given, beat them all the way to hell and back, I haven't ever bothered to tell any of my doctors or the nurses this. I don't know why. It simply hasn't occurred to me to do so. I doubt they'd care anyway. I've asked to please not be disturbed for a couple of hours, and I've been promised my request will be honored. That should give me the time I need to finish this. Dr. Teasdale, I will readily confess that one of the reasons it's taken me so long to reach this point is the fact that... Words fail. It's an awful cliche, I know, but also a point I cannot stress strongly enough. There are sights and experiences to which the blunt and finite tool of human language are not equal. I know this, though I'm no poet. But I want that caveat understood. This is not what happened aboard Pilgrimage. This is the sky seen through a window blurred by driving rain. It's the best I can manage, and it's the best you'll ever get. I've said all along, if the technology existed to plug in and extract the memories from my brain, I wouldn't deign to call it rape. Most of the people who've spent so much time and energy and money trying to prize for me the truth about the fate of Pilgrimage and its crew, they're only scientists, after all. They have no other aphrodisiac but curiosity. As for the rest the spooks and politicians, the bureaucrats and corporate shills. Those guys are only along for the ride, and I figure most of them know they're in over their heads. I could make of it a fairy tale. It might begin, Once upon a time, there was a woman who lived in New York. She was an anthropologist and shared a tiny apartment in downtown Brooklyn with her lover, and her lover was a woman named Amory D'Amico, who happened to be a molecular geneticist, exobiologist, and also an astronaut. They had a cat, and a tank of tropical fish. They always wanted a dog, but the apartment was too small. They could have afforded a better place to live, aloft in midtown Manhattan, perhaps, north and east of the flood zone. But the anthropologist was happy enough with Brooklyn, and her lover was usually on the road anyway. Besides, walking a dog would have been a lot of trouble. "'No, that's not working. "'I've never been much good with irony. "'And I'm better served by the immediacy of present tense. "'So, instead... "'Turn around, Merrick,' she says. "'You've come so far, and there is so little time.' "'And I do as she tells me. "'I turn towards the voice, towards the airlock's open inner hatch.' "'There is no sign of Amory, or anyone else for that matter. "'The first thing I notice stepping from the brightly lit airlock "'is that the narrow, heptagonal corridor beyond is mostly dark. "'The second thing I notice is the mist. "'I know at once that it is mist, not smoke. "'It fills the hallway from deck to ceiling, "'and even with the blue in-floor path lighting, "'it's hard to see more than a few feet ahead.' The mist swirls thickly around me like Halloween phantoms, and I'm about to ask Amory where it's coming from, what it's doing here, when I notice the walls. Or rather, when I notice what's growing on the walls. I'm fairly confident I've never seen anything with precisely that texture before. It half reminds me, but only half, of the rubbery blades and stipes of kelp It's almost the same color as kelp, too, some shade that's not quite brown, nor green, nor a very dark purple. It glimmers, wetly, as though it's sweating or secreting mucus. I stop and stare, simultaneously alarmed and amazed and revolted. It is revolting, extremely so, this clinging material covering over and obscuring almost everything— I look up and see that it's also growing on the ceiling. In places, long tendrils of it hang down like dripping vines. Dr. Teasdale, I want so badly to describe these things, this waking nightmare, in much greater detail. I want to describe it perfectly. But as I've said, words fail. For that matter, memory fades, and there's so much more to come. A few thick drops of the almost colorless mucus drip from the ceiling onto my visor, and I gag reflexively. The sensors in my EVA suit respond by administering a dose of some potent antiemetic. The nausea passes quickly, and I use my left hand to wipe the slime away as best I can. I follow the corridor, going very slowly because the mist is only getting denser, and as I move farther away from the airlock... I discover that the stuff growing on the walls and ceiling is also sprouting from the deck plates. It's slippery and squelches beneath my boots. Worse, most of the path lighting is now buried beneath it, and I switch on the mag spots built into either side of my helmet. The beams reach only a short distance into the gloom. "'You're almost there,' Amory says." Amory, or the A.I. speaking with her stolen voice. Ten yards ahead, the corridor forks. Take the right fork. It leads directly to the transhab module. "'You want to tell me what's waiting in there?' I ask, neither expecting nor actually desiring an answer. "'Nothing is waiting,' Amory supplies. "'But there are many things we would have you see.' There's not much time. You should hurry. And I do try to walk faster, but, despite the suit's exoskeleton and gyros, almost lose my footing on the slick deck. Where the corridor forks, I go right as instructed. The habitation module is open, the hatch fully dilated, as though I'm expected. Or maybe it's been left open for days, or months, or years. I linger a moment on the threshold. It's so very dark in there. I call out for Amory. I call out for anyone at all, but this time there's no answer. I try my comms again, and there's not even static. I fully comprehend that in all my life I have never been so alone as I am at this moment, and likely I never will be again. I know, too, with a sudden and unwavering certainty that Avery D'Amico is gone from me forever and that I'm the only human being aboard pilgrimage. I take three or four steps into the transhab, but stop when something pale and big around as my forearm slithers lazily across the floor directly in front of me. If there was a head, I didn't see it. Watching as it slides past, I think of pythons, boas, anacondas, though, in truth, it bears only a passing similarity to a snake of any sort. "'You will not be harmed, Merrick,' Amory says, from a speaker somewhere in the darkness. The voice is almost reassuring. "'You must trust that you will not be harmed.' "'What was that?' I ask. "'Soon now, you will see,' the voice replies." "'We have ten million children. "'Soon we will have ten million more. "'We are pleased that you have come to say goodbye.' "'They want to know what's happened,' I say, "'breathing too hard, much too fast, "'gasping despite the suit's ministrations. "'At Jupiter, what happened to the ship? "'Where's the crew? "'Why is pilgrimage in orbit around Mars?' "'I turn my head to the left,' and where there were once bunks, I can only make out a great swelling or clot of the kelp-like growth. Its surface swarms with what I, at first, briefly mistake for insects. "'I didn't come to say goodbye,' I whisper. "'This is a retrieval mission, Amory. "'We've come to take you—' and I trail off, unable to complete the sentence, too keenly aware of its irrelevance.' "'Merrick, are you beginning to see?' I look away from the swelling and the crawling things that aren't insects and take another step into the habitation module. "'No, Amory, I'm not. Help me to see, please.' "'Close your eyes,' she says. "'And I do. And when I open them again, I'm lying in bed with her. There's still an hour or so left before dawn.' and we're lying in bed, naked together beneath the blankets, staring up through the apartment skylight. It's snowing. This is the last night before Amory leaves for Cape Canaveral, the last time I see her, because I have refused to be present at the launch or even watch it online. She has her arms around me, and one of the big, ungainly hovers is passing low above our building. I do my best to pretend that its complex array of landing beacons are actually stars. Amory kisses my right cheek, and then her lips brush lightly against my ear. "'We could not understand, Merrick, because we were too far and could not remember,' she says, quoting Joseph Conrad. "'The words roll from her tongue and palate like the spiraling snowflakes tumbling down from that tangerine sky. "'We were traveling in the night of first ages, of those ages that are gone,' "'leaving hardly a sign and no memories. "'Once, Dr. Teasdale, when Amory was sick with the flu, "'I read her most of The Heart of Darkness. "'She always liked when I read to her. "'When I came to that passage, "'she had me find a pencil and underline it "'so that she could return to it later. "'The earth seemed unearthly,' she says, "'and I blink, dismissing the illusion. I'm standing near the center of the transhab now and in the stark white light from my helmet I see what I've been brought here to see. Around me, the walls leak and every inch of the module seems alive with organisms too alien for any earthborn vernacular. I've spent my adult life describing artifacts and fossil bones but I will not even attempt to describe the myriad of forms that crawled and skittered "'and wriggled through the ruins of pilgrimage. "'I would fail if I did, and I would fail utterly. "'We want you to know we had a choice,' Amory says. "'We want you to know that, Merrick. "'And what is about to happen when you leave this ship? "'We want you to know that is also of our choosing.' "'I see her, then. "'All that's left of her, or all that she's become,' The rough outline of her body, squatting near one of the lower bunks. Her damp skin shimmers, all but indistinguishable from the rubbery substance growing throughout the vessel. Only her skin is not so smooth, but pocked with countless oozing pores or lesions. Though the finer features of her face have been obliterated, there is no mouth remaining, no eyes, only a faint ridge that was her nose, I recognize her beyond any shadow of a doubt. She is rooted to that spot, her legs below the knees, her arms below the elbow, simply vanishing into the deck. There is constant, eager movement from inside her distended breasts and belly, and where the cleft of her sex once was. I don't have the language to describe what I saw there but she bleeds life from that impossible wound, and I know she has become a daughter of the oily black cloud that Pilgrimage encountered near Ganymede, just as she is mother and father to every living thing trapped within the crucible of that ship. Every living thing but me. There isn't any time left, the voice from the A.I. says calmly calmly but sternly. "'You must leave now, Merrick. All available resources on this craft have been depleted, and we must seek sanctuary or perish.' I nod and turn away from her because I understand as much as I'm ever going to understand, and I've seen more than I can bear to remember. I move as fast as I dare across the transhab and along the corridor leading back to the airlock. In less than five minutes... I'm safely strapped into my seat on the taxi again, decoupling and falling back towards Yastreb 4. A few hours later, while I'm waiting out my time in Decon, Commander Yun tells me that Pilgrimage has fired its main engines and broken orbit. In a few moments, it will enter the thin Martian atmosphere and begin to burn. Our AI has plotted a best guess trajectory, placing the point of impact within the Tharsis Montes along the flanks of Arcea Mons. He tells me that the exact coordinates, minus 5.636 degrees north, 241.259 degrees east, correspond to one of the collapsed cavern roofs dotting the flanks of the ancient volcano. The pit named Jean discovered way back in 2007. There's not much chance of anything surviving the descent, he says. I don't reply, and I never tell him, nor anyone else aboard the Yastrub for what I saw during my seventeen minutes on pilgrimage. And there's no need, Dr. Teasdale, for me to tell you what you already know, or what your handlers know which means, I think, that we've reached the end of this confession. Here's the feather in your cap. May you choke on it. Outside my hospital window, the rain has stopped. I press the call button and wait on the nurses with their shiny yellow pills and the white pills flecked with gray, their jet sprays and hollow needles filled with nightmares and sometimes... When I'm very lucky, dreamless sleep. The end.
3: There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Caitlin's. And a big thank you to Amy H. Sturgis. Links on to Amy's site, blog. And to Caitlin's site. Thank you so much. Now we have an interview with Terry Martin. There's been some honestly there's a there's a buzz around the kind of the world there with murky depths. This is a British science fiction horror magazine. And Terry's just, you know, if full time we've talked about it. There's an interview here, and he's just it's going great guns, this magazine. So have a listen to the interview. And again, come over and have a look at the, the art cover as well. Fantastic. And if you want to, please subscribe to this magazine at Grand Cause. So I've been hearing lots of talk about this Murky Depths, this UK magazine, and I have Terry Martin on the phone. Terry, are you there?
6: I am indeed, yes. Hi, Tony.
3: Terry, it's lovely to come on board Starship Sova. Tell us a little bit, what's your involvement with Murky Depths?
6: Um, Well, I suppose I'm the daddy. It was my brainchild, and I've put it together. I do most of the stuff, um, uh, virtually all of it. But I do have one editor in the States, which is Anne Stringer, who uh, used to be involved in variant frequencies? Her her husband um, was the, the brainchild of that, and the, the one who put all that together. But I don't think they're doing that anymore. But that's kind of getting off the subject. Sorry.
3: <laughs> no, it's all right. I mean, I mean, I, I didn't actually know that. That's quite nice. That because we've actually had, I think it's Rick from Variant Frequencies did a couple of yeah, narrations. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I, di- I didn't realize that. So. Is are you more UK based then? Because I I notice. Am I right in thinking you've actually got print magazines as well, or is it just the the PDF downloads?
6: It's well, it, our main thrust is the print magazines. Uh, we're not luddites, but um, I'm kind of, I kind of like the the feel and the smell, and I mean, murky depths is a very good quality magazine, and that was one of the things I wanted to do right from the start. I mean, um, sort of pitted against or pitched, sorry, against Asimovs and fantasy work kind of stuff. They're all very digesty, pulpy things, and I wanted to make this a really nice sort of glossy production. So, and you can't do, you can't do
3: that online. <laughs> yes, well, I I tell you what I'm interested in though is because you know the, the way the kind of the shift is in you know media and print and everything going online now it must have been it must have been a big decision for you to say Sod it, I'm still going to go with my ideas you know a really glossy magazine because the, the, again the way the markets are going everything is going on a Kindle and everything's you know on the internet that must have been a because it must cost a a fair chunk of change to put out in these days a print magazine you know, to, to your standard as well i mean because i'm looking at the the was the screen now your your website and they they just look lovely
6: they, yeah i mean they are it was it was a difficult decision but i kind of felt that mm, maybe a, a kind of a stalwart of print in a way because i i feel there's always going to be a market for print and and maybe even with the amount of people going Going over to the digital market, that there there could well be a niche for, for the print magazines, you know, a new niche, if you like, for people who really want some quality and they want, you know, the. I nearly said old fashioned, it's, it's not particularly old fashioned, but, um, you know, that kind of, you know, something you can put on your bookshelf. And while well, it's all very intangible, it's all sort of ethereal, if you like, almost, when you get the Kindles and. Yeah?
3: Yeah. Well, what. But what I'm, it's in, the, in there? Wasn't it? No, in the real world, though, what? How's your, your figures for your your print magazine? Because you've got the PDF downloads. Is does your yeah. your print side outstrip the PDF downloads?
6: It does, yeah, right, a, a lot as well. Uh, the take up on the PDFs hasn't been, you know, half as big as I thought it would be. Um, in fact, some people have have bought a, P, have got a PDF and then realise that perhaps this is something that they'd like to you know, get hold of in the flesh if you like and they've ordered the, the print magazine so you know, if, that that was kind of one of the things I was hoping as well that it might promote some sales of the print magazine.
3: Well yes exactly do you know what I mean and it, I suppose it is one of the best adverts there you know to have it on like a nice fancy machine and then to know you can go and get this in the, the purest, glossiest sense, of, you know, like a, a yeah. fantastic paper. It's nice to know, do you know what I mean? That like you're kind of there's people still out there pushing out stuff because I know like Interzones is like a, a lovely kind of glossy magazine there now and it's got some great stuff in. And It's nice to know yeah. that you know that there is still a market there, and especially when you're saying it's sales are outstripping your PDFs, you know, which is a brilliant news. Yeah,
6: yeah um, m- while you mentioned on the mention of um, Interzone, we actually um, were up against them last year at the British Fantasy Awards. And which, which, of course, we won last year. So that was that was quite um, amazing.
3: That's just fantastic. Were you, were you there when they, they announced did You have to go up and do all that, did yeah, you? I did. I, did. <laughs> I mean,
6: I I was kind of um, all day. You're obviously hoping that you're going to win, but I, I thought, well, I'm a real outsider here, so I'm not even going to bother trying to think about a speech because if I if I get a speech together and and I I don't win, I'm going to be really really disappointed. So and I didn't really think I was going to win. So, when I, when I won, I had no speech prepared. <laughs> so I just went up there. It's actually on... There's a YouTube video of it, so...
3: Well, I'll see if I can... I'll find that and see if I can put a link on so people can come over and then have a look at that as well. So, tell us, Terry, then, about Murky Depths. What what you're looking for, what do you produce, and have you got fact articles? Tell us everything you can about Murky Depths.
6: Uh, right, okay. It's... um. It's well, we're we're a dark speculative speculative fiction magazine. That's what I call it. I mean, some people would disagree that some of what we print isn't speculative fiction. Well, they would say it isn't. Um, it and we mix, we mix. Unlike well, unusually, we mix comics and prose. Um, and the the prose stories are also they have a double page spread illustration. So it is quite a, a graphic or a graphical kind of magazine, anyway. And one of the things, going back to um, the, the Internet, is if, if I was going to do something just for the Internet, then I would completely redesign Murky Depths. I don't think it kind of lends itself very well, um, you know, to readers and stuff like that. Um, yes, we we probably don't get enough... Science science fiction straight science fiction stories. Most people seem to think, or it may be because of our covers, that we are just horror. But really, I'm looking for dark science fiction. Um, you know, I'm quite happy with the element of horror there. Um, but it, I mean, dark doesn't necessarily mean horror and blood and gore. And, you know. Um, how, how
3: does that sounding is uh, well, it's, it's nice. Yes, there it's nice because, like you said, there is you know science fiction that you know isn't just all kind of zap guns and everything like that. So it's nice that you know you'll take in what I'm interested to find out. What's You know the the kind of quality the stories you're getting. Are you getting oodles of stories? Is there still the kind of people still sending you stories? And what's the percentage of them that are naff, to be quite honest? And compared to the ones that I think you think that's a cracking story.
6: Yeah, I suppose we we probably. I mean Anne's job in the states is to filter out the the stuff that isn't really suitable. Doesn't mean to say it's no good. Just means it's not suitable for us. And then she sends me probably about. Um three quarters back for me to sift through she actually so that you know the process she actually um gives the story she sends back to me a mark of between one to th- to three with one being you know probably we're gonna publish it and uh, a three is a you know maybe not and a two is a sometimes it's kind of on the fence like so she's looking for you know a bit more um Input, if you like, from from what we're going to do. But we, I've also got an editor in the in the UK as well, Debbie Morehouse, who actually works on uh, God or Good magazine, and uh, I, I get second opinions from her when I'm a little bit unsure as well. So you know, it's not just it's not just me. Um, we at one point we was getting about six stories a day, which doesn't sound very much. Um, but when you you know got lots of other things to do and you're reading you know six six stories of five k, it does take a bit of time, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, the they're not always. You know, so, sometimes you can see at the beginning that they're not going to work. So you know you'll jump to the end. That's kind of the thing you might do if you've got a lot of stories to go through. And uh, I, I, one of the things that, if you are submitting to us, um, please follow the guidelines because you kind of, if you're going, if you're reading lots and lots of stories, you're looking for an excuse to reject them. I know that it sounds horrible, but
3: it's actually. It, I, I mean, it's a, from my side. You know, I don't kind of. I'm I'm able to just kind of pick the stories I want. So that's the way Starship Sofa works. But yeah. and I was talking to it's. I think it was one of the escape pod editors, and he was saying. That you know, with him, it was literally the first paragraph. Do you know what I mean? It was the the first paragraph. If you didn't get past him on that first paragraph, it was gone. And it was like it's such a cruel and heartless thing. You know, I mean? you kind well, of no, you slave away to, to kind of get these stories out, and it's like you've got one paragraph, one shot to get it. You know, a little bit past it is that. Are you? How far does it take you before you think, "Nah, this is not going to work"?
6: Um. Yeah. Yeah. The first paragraph is usually a good indication. Um, but I do, I do give them more, more chance than that. Because sometimes you may miss a good story. You, know, you might say, OK, get rid of the first five pages. We'll start there, and that's a good story.
3: And have you, have you been known to do that? Will you, or will you get back in touch with a writer and say, can yeah. we just tweak yeah. this?
6: Definitely, yeah. yeah. It will, you know, so, Sometimes we'll say, we'll take the story, but you need to do this. Or another time we might say, we like this story. You know, we we like to give you a second chance. You know, go away. We make a few suggestions, and generally, most people are happy to do that.
3: So, tell us then, Terry, what's what's for the future of Mercury Depths? What what we got coming, so we can look forward to? And are you are you going to just keep on running on the same path, or have you got some ideas for changes?
6: Um, well, we're always kind of making changes because at the beginning it was just short stories, um, but we've we've introduced. Reviews, not not too many because I, I didn't want to go that way, but, but it's kind of created a little bit of interest. Um, we always started out with interviews, so there will always be at least one interview in there, and uh, we, we kind of started doing a little spotlight on the, the lesser-known people as well so they get a page, and a little bit about them. Um, and then there was Matt Wallace who was doing the um, depth charge, which is kind of a rant. This is a, a two-page rant, but we're we're moving on, and we're going to start a little gaming section, um, you know, role-playing game section from a, a guy I used to run a magazine with um, quite a few years ago called Random Factor, which was a tabletop war games magazine. So um, I've, I've been doing lots of little magazines for a while, so I'm, I, I kind of knew what I was letting myself in for.
3: And so everything, well, hopefully everything is going all right and Murky Depths is still, you know, is looking to the road ahead. You haven't got any kind of financial issues. You're still, you know, you can see it keep on going well, for a while. Cheers. <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah, like you say, it's not cheap to print a magazine, um, like, particularly like Murky Depths. Um, and we we just um, released um, the Dead... We had a... I don't know if you may have heard of Richard Calder's Dead Girls. no no it's quite a cult um, book there's this three in the series Dead Girls Dead Boys and Dead Things but we're turning uh, Dead Girls into a graphic novel which was seri- the, f- the first act it's in three acts the first act was serialised in issues 9 to 12 of Murky Depths and we've just done a, a full colour hardback limited edition signed and numbered um, in full colour and the second act starts in issue 16 uh, as a 20-page special. So that's something sort of in the future. That should be out in uh, in the mm, end of April. So we should just about have that ready for EasterCon.
3: Right. How, how often does Murky Depths come out? Have, have I missed that? Have you told us that already? I've missed it. No. no,
6: no. <laughs> it comes out once a quarter, and, it, and it, I've hit the schedule... You know, for the last three and a half years, spot on. So I'm quite pleased about that. Um, so sometimes I've had a few artists let me down, but but that's unusual. But I've got a kind of my own artist here who who can um, do a quick a quick double page just to to fill. Well, not, not to fill it because he's quite good, but. Um, I'll, I have been singing,
3: yeah, cheeky thing So is it just, I mean, kind of wound it up now But just for you personally, Terry, is this take up so much of your time doing?
6: It's what I do now, it's my full-time job Right Well, I say it's my full-time job, I do do work one day a week in a school teaching art But the rest of the time is taken up with Mercury Depths And that includes the weekends as well
3: and there's, you, you put a few hours into that, do you? <laughs> I
6: did, yeah, I was, I was going to say. Um, I meant to say earlier that um, we do take um, well-known authors as well. For instance, we got uh, John Courtney Grimwood was in our first issue, and he's also written another story for us. And it, it's kind of it just kind of shows the you know the, the well-known authors are, are willing and, and happy, or, or more than willing and happy to help out. You know. An up-and-coming magazine. I think it's great that he gave us something in the first issue, not even knowing what it was going to be like.
3: Well, yes, amazing. And like I said, it's, you, you just look at your covers on on your website; just, they just the make you want to read it. So I'll put a link on. Do you know what I mean? And I'll, uh, I get hopefully we will get everyone to go over and have a look. So just for you know, I was talking to you before. You know, a lot of my listeners, you know, come from the states. Do you ship yeah. to the states, magazines, or is that a yes. little bit too yeah. expensive for them?
6: Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's not cheap. It's um, it's more well, nearly four pound to ship a magazine to the states because it's kind of it's not light. <laughs> um, but we yeah, we got quite a few subscribers out there, so you know, and and all around the world,
3: money well spent, I think. Terry, it's been lovely yeah. having you on board Starship Sova. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. Listen, good luck with everything. Are you, are you in again for the the British Fantasy Awards this year? or...?
6: Well, if we're nominated, um, I should be very pleased.
3: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Terry, take good care and long live Murky Depths. Thank you, Sony. Cheers. So, there you go. Do pop over there. There is a link on to murky, murky Depths. You can get the PDF or you can get the actual print magazine. And, like I say, I mentioned in the interview, it's so nice to hear you know the print magazine it's you know it's doing head and shoulders above the kind of pdf electronic format that's amazing do you know what i mean it's all we always kind of and you know one of the big kind of instigators you know, it's all going downhill for the print magazine not according to terry there that's just amazing news terry honestly good luck with that So we're coming into a bit of main fiction again, Dr. North's Wound by John Dobbs. I'm going to play this story straight away because I've got a nice big interview with John afterwards, so we'll just get straight into the interview after that as well. So Starship Sofa is very proud to present Dr. North's Wound by John Dobbs.
4: Dr North's Wound by John Dodds It is generally supposed, by poets and philosophers, if not by men of science, that love resides within the heart. And until my apprenticeship to Dr North, indeed I too believed this to be so. Late in the year of 1878, in the tenth month of my indenture to him, the doctor chose to make an example of me before his dinner guests at one of his renowned soirees. There were eight of us at table, And, to my mortification, Arabella Fanshawe was one of the party. I could have forgiven my employer anything but cutting me down before her, which he chose to do with some relish. Dr North, handsome, sallow-faced, with a smile like a fox, said, in response to my comment on the question about where love resides, As an analytical thinker, Jerome, a chemist of some talent, I might add, and here he winked provokingly at Arabella, who sat to his left, You surely cannot subscribe to such rhetorical rot. I felt myself grow pale as I saw the blush flare on Arabella's cheek. But whether this was from anger at Dr North or shame for myself, I could not say. And I could look neither the doctor nor Arabella in the eye. Such was my humiliation. This was particularly the case when my employer compounded the slight with... Perhaps you should relinquish your training as an apothecary and take to writing romantic doggerel for spinsters and young girls. Laughter rippled like the legs of a centipede around the table. Arabella, thankfully, did not participate. Harold Mackenzie, the wealthiest landowner in the county of R, by contrast, brayed, even as he was playfully slapped across the back of his hand by his usually timid wife. Write something for my dear Gwendolen too, he said, pinching his wife's cheek. For she says I have not a romantic bone in my body, though, he added, I did not hear you complain last night, eh, my dear? The ladies around the table, the ancient Mrs Quinn and her prissy daughter Jane in particular, were horrified at this off-colour remark. And some of the men too, myself included, took to studying intently the remains of the entree on their dinner plates. Dr North, however, saw this as another opening. Oh, he said... I'm speaking not of physical love, of lust, of animal passions, but of the so-called union of souls. Ah, so you believe in the soul, Doctor. This from my friend and cousin, Robert Thixton, a playful irony in his tone. Dr North stiffened somewhat at this. Arabella put a napkin to her lips, and I could have sworn, by the fetching creases at the corners of her eyes, that she was smiling behind it. I speak in the sense of energy fields, Mr Thixton, Galvanic experiments, the new work with electricity demonstrated the existence of such energy. It's no small matter to, Robert interrupted, reanimating the amputated leg of a dead frog is hardly proof of universal energy, sir. Now it was my turn to try to conceal a smile. Robert cherished debate, and was contradictory never from strong conviction, but merely from the pleasure of the game. My mentor's eyes took on the cyanotic hue of rain clouds, and I feared another tantrum building. "'I need not have worried, for now that I know him better, "'it's clear that he is too clever, too manipulative "'to make such an exhibition before his guests "'who might be of service to him in the future. "'Yes, I know the man now. "'These dinner companions commanded power in the community, "'and if Dr North desired anything, it was that power, "'or at any rate, the ability to harness it. "'The desiccated Mrs Quinn, who sat next to my cousin opposite her daughter, "'would easily identify with this desire.' For the widow of the mill owner, Bartholomew Quinn, had acquired power through just such social engineering, forming alliances and committees and political collectives of the wealthy and influential around her to further her own ends. Her daughter Jane showed no such cleverness, unless her fluttering and obvious admiration of Dr North and her flirtatiousness with him were a ruse by which she hoped to gain such power for herself. The debate continued a while longer, the Doctor's motion being for the existence of universal energy as the spark which animates all life, and within which love, if such a thing can be empirically proven, must be a part. Robert, sometimes abetted by Mr Mackenzie, presented counter-arguments, or toyed with the Doctor's point of view, now seeming to side with it, now knocking it down again in light-hearted ways, to the amusement of all at table, including, it appeared, Dr North himself. His witty counter-arguments drew smiles and admiring glances from the ladies. It was within my power to break the stalemate by revealing the nature of the doctor's lifelong work, but to describe or even hint at the experiments in which I presently assisted him would have put in jeopardy not only my present position and sole means of income, but also any prospect for my future here or anywhere else. In any event, neither side won. Love was to remain a mystery for the evening. The meal proceeded civilly enough, as these occasions must, with further polite conversation and more robust banter between the men when we retired to the smoking room. Between the men, the subjects of love and universal energy were laid to rest, replaced with talk of money and society and matters of politics, none of which interested me one whit, unless my fear of failure and becoming pauper constitutes an interest in money and society.' My thoughts, even as I tried my utmost to be an entertaining companion, were elsewhere. In speaking of love so foolishly, I had found none in that house that evening, other than that which I secretly and unrequitedly held for Arabella Fanshawe. One of my duties as the doctor's assistant was to keep a logbook, a register, if you will, of his studies and experiments. This was not his physician's casebook, mind, for that he recorded in his own hand, The log was a dated record in tabular form of each experiment, its purpose and protocols, its successes and, most often, failures. For example, it is recorded that on the 13th of May, 1869, in a treatment of Mrs Susan Middlemiss for influenza, a swab was taken from the inside of each cheek pouch and droplets of perspiration from her temple. These were distilled with a chemical compound of the doctor's devising and examined under his brass microscope through the finest ground lenses from Switzerland. The log records the microscopic organisms in both the saliva and the perspiration, the degree of salinity of each, and so on. In the box for comments, I was instructed to write Bacterium. Are the feelings, the senses, also a result of bacterium being transmitted between one person and the next? Are the emotions of anger, desire, or love, for that matter a consequence merely of the humours which can cause fever. I knew better than to comment upon these findings, but my increasing discomfort with the unwitting nature of his subject's participation in his experiments troubled me. Another troublesome aspect of working with the doctor was his regular disappearances from the town. It was known that he was seeing a woman, though it was not in his nature to discuss their relationship or even hint at who she was. What was apparent, that his acquaintance never visited Dr North at home. At first I considered he might be having an affair, but given his lack of passion for anything but his work, this seemed unlikely. One day I was preparing laudanum for one patient, mercurochrome for another, and belladonna extract for a man who had been poisoned. In the latter case, Dr North was convinced that one poison would counteract the other, though it must be administered with great care. Tired from long hours of work, the experiments being conducted outside my normal working hours, unwaged I might add, I turned as the laboratory door opened and my sleeve caught the laudanum bottle and dashed it to the ground, where it smashed and the pungent liquid was blotted by the Persian carpet. Oh, damn it man, how can you be so careless? My employer hissed at me. You're a buffoon at times, Jerome. This will come out of your wages. The doctor had just now returned from one of his trips, but I did not have the good grace to put his response down to travel weariness. Instead I was furious, and I stood up to gaze steadfastly at him. At half a head taller than he, I should not have felt intimidated, but yet I did, and my intestines twisted, even as I rebuked him. Doctor, how can you expect the best of me if you drive me day and night like a beast of burden? I work hard for you, do I not?' And, while I am grateful for your tutelage, it is more than repaid with my time in assisting you in your experiments. How dare you! I ask nothing of you that I do not ask of myself, and if you are so ungrateful... I lowered my eyes, trying in vain to retain my stance of righteous indignation, but said, It is not only that, Doctor, but in truth I have concerns about the other work. Having spoken out finally, I looked at him again, and to my surprise saw his countenance soften, the cloudy brow cleared and his eyes sparkled with mischief. I saw there his undoubted attractiveness, his appeal to the women in his care, and also how he would play with the emotions of others while feeling nothing himself, unless calculation is an emotion. Nevertheless, I let him influence me as I usually did. But I was even grateful when he said, "'Jerome, my boy, you dwell in matters of the heart too much. You are led by your feelings rather than your thoughts.' I've harmed no one, and these people are too simple to understand why I test them in less conventional ways than they might expect. Less conventional? Euphemistically, the attachment of electrodes to the basal ganglia and cerebral lobes of a man with brain fever, the placement of such devices and the application of electrical charges of various voltages, inducing fits, or the facial rictus of a man unmistakably experiencing erotic pleasure, might be said indeed to be unconventional. He added, as if reading my thoughts, I do no one harm, and indeed I hope I do everything in my power to cure my patients of their ailments, and when that is not God's will, at least to provide them with any comfort I can. Perhaps, I replied cautiously, but is it not unscrupulous to use these people against their will? Against their will? How can it be against their will when they have no consciousness of what's being done to them? And with that, he ushered me into his drawing-room and poured us both a glass of sherry, which I was too tired to decline, and which I drank without relish. I, I'm, I must clean up your rug, Doctor, I began. No, leave it, Jerome. Harris will do it. Harris was my employer's maid, a woman of advanced years who had once been the midwife of the practice under Dr North's predecessor, Oliver Marsden. I hear, incidentally, that Arabella's father is opposed to your marriage. He changed the subject with the speed and deadliness of a viper. It was true. My relationship with Arabella Fanshawe had blossomed in the past months, the dinner party having unwittingly been the catalyst to our growing romantic attachment, developed with the assistance of Dr North, who contrived to invite her to parties and outings at which I would be present. Indeed, thinking back, it seemed that the doctor often praised Arabella's beauty and cleverness and sensitivity to me, so much so that I thought him half in love with her himself, until I found that he had equally praised me to Arabella. Should I be grateful for this much-making, did I seem so incapable of attracting Miss Fanshawe on my own? In truth, I did feel a little below her, and the more gracious part of me was only grateful for the Doctor's generosity towards us both. And yet, and yet her father almost thought less of me than I did of myself. I, a mere student with no dowry to offer, could hardly be considered a suitor for his youngest daughter, his most precious jewel. That she was no less precious to me was of no consequence since Mr Fanshawe held all the cards, or so it seemed then. I said mockingly, It's a wonder to me that he allows me to see her at all. It would not surprise me if he were to lock her in a tower like Rapunzel. Dr North gave a short, hoarse laugh at this and said, You may be no prince in his eyes as yet, but I see your potential even if he does not, and besides, I have some influence with him, and I have at least some understanding of the politics of love. This provided the opening I needed. I do not think of my relationship with Arabella as political in any respect. Trying to retain a jovial tone, I added, perhaps your relationship with your mysterious lady friend is of a more governmental persuasion? He smiled, but with no sincerity. The doctor had common sense enough to appreciate his relationship must be known about, but also the cleverness not to show surprise at its being remarked upon. I have known Madeleine for several years, and I have no doubt that she loves me. I have feelings for her, I... And here he stumbled over his words. She is... willful, beautiful, a warm and generous spirit, and yet... And yet, you cannot reciprocate her feelings? He looked searchingly at me, and I fleetingly glimpsed a vulnerability in his countenance. I wish more than anything I could. If any woman could inspire such feelings, it is she, but when I'm with her I feel... Nothing... "'the pleasure of our company, of course, and the tenderness of deep friendship. "'Yet it's not enough. I seek more, much more.' "'Dr. North spoke with unaccustomed passion, "'but it was the passion of a deep thinker and strangely devoid of emotion, "'a puzzling juxtaposition of opposite states of being. "'My eyes sought his in silent inquiry, "'but it was clear that he was done with the subject for the moment. "'Now, to other matters, work to be done, but only after a night's rest.' We must set off early in the morning, as we have a number of patients to see, a childless couple most particularly. I was greatly surprised at this. A childless couple? But that's not your... my area. Doctor, I've scant knowledge of such things. What he was about, I could not say, but I felt greatly discomfited. My imagination placed images before me that I did not wish to examine too closely. Congestion, that is all, he explained with a smile. If love is an exchange of etheric fluid or energy, which is what I am going to believe, then procreation is merely an exchange of fluids too, and fluids can be damned, or redirected at will. His bluntness often astonished me. I had watched Fascinated a month previously as Dr North made furious notes while observing a stallion impregnate a filly. The filly had been unable to bear the weight of and the doctor had helped the farmer devise a harness which made the coupling possible and less painful for the poor female. Aversion filled me, not so much at the mechanistic means of achieving the desired result, but the dispassionate way that the doctor looked on as the poor filly whinnied in distress, and the stallion's front hooves, which dangled from the harness, struck again and again at her haunches until the act was completed. I am sorry that I was angry with you, Jerome. His tone was soft and earnest and soothed me the way it must soothe his patients in their distress. I confess I am tired myself. We will feel the better for letting Morpheus do his work. And so we retired for the evening, though I wished the Lord of Dream would not visit me with further nightmares that had lately begun to plague me. A recurrent dream was of walking through an archway with Doric columns of white marble, Arabella, by my side. As we passed through... Her hand slipped out of mine, and she fell over the edge of a precipice. I screamed her name and rushed to the edge, only to find it was not a cliff at all, but a river bank. And there, beneath a sheet of ice, lay my bride-to-be in her lace wedding dress. Her hands, her dear, pale fingers crossed over her breast, her lips as blue as her eyes, frozen and still, a petrified Ophelia. In the portion of the dream that woke me... I was attacking the ice with a woodsman's axe, but the blade would only skip on the surface, as though my arms had turned to mist, and I wept and tears froze in crystal droplets on my cheeks. Yellow broom plants around the cottage that was once mine and Arabella's, vanilla scented in the breeze. The perfume always takes me back to my wedding day as I waited in the churchyard. Robert by my side, trying to calm me, while in the distance, Dr North, stood in the archway of the graveyard's yew trees, the threshold between this world and the next. But I am ahead of my tale, my garden's perfume through the window as I write, distracting me from what I must now set down, so that others may read it when I am gone from this world. Though I write for myself primarily in penance, or in an attempt to understand Part of me hopes that a scholar or merely a curious individual may find my manuscript and through it come to better understand the nature of love. It is the only inheritance I shall leave. Next morning I awoke refreshed, my nightmare having not returned. Perhaps the good doctor had put a potion in my drink that I would rest easier, and if he did, I inwardly thanked him for it. We chose to walk to our patients that day, for it was fine. Blustery and with flashes of sunshine between scudding banks of cloud. We saw ten people in the morning, and, although it was not my usual custom to join the doctor on his visitations, he felt it would be educational for me to witness how my pills and potions were put to use, and to understand that often they need not be used at all. Illness is often merely a matter of willpower, Jerome, he explained as we approached the house of the Allardyces, the childless couple. One may choose to be well or to be ill, I have found. But surely, Doctor, there are infections over which willpower has no control. I myself had seen many people overcome severe illness by sheer force of will, but I did not subscribe to the Doctor's overgeneralizations, although I expect they were stated to provoke discussion rather than to be statements of fact. True, but how one deals with illness is a matter of choice. We can lie down and die or fight against inertia. A man who works in the fields all day expects his wife to cook his meals, wash his clothes and so on, and if he takes ill he expects her to nurse him. But in that nursing he will do nothing to help himself, but instead reverts to an infantile state. When my parents died, did I tell you they died in a fire when I was eight, I had to master my grief, since I knew otherwise it would overwhelm me. I made no reply sensitive to the delicacy of such a rare confidentiality though unsure what might have prompted it. He continued, My nanny was a wicked woman and would punish me for any sign of weakness or bad behaviour. She once beat me across the back with the handle of a broom for stealing apples from a neighbour's tree, but I never cried, not once. The power of will, you see. Grief, pain, illness, love. I have mastery over all of them. He smiled distantly, as if unaware for a moment he was not alone, and that his assistant was by his side. At last, we arrived at a small cottage, and the doctor knocked upon its door. Frank and Pauline Allardyce were a handsome pair, he in his early forties perhaps, she in her mid-thirties. That she should want a child now, I wondered at, and thought it unlikely they could conceive at their time of life, though I confess I know little of the gynaecological science. As we waited for tea, Frank filling his pipe at the fireplace, while we sat at the oak table by the small cottage window, the doctor whispered to me, She had a child last year, stillborn. Frank Allardyce was greying, but had fresh rosiness in his complexion of one who works outdoors all day long, and the ready smile of an innocent. After some initial discomfort at my presence, he relaxed and drew meditatively on his pipe, The discussion went back and forth about the probability of a child, about the causes of the death of the first child, of diet and so on. And then Dr North said something very queer. Mr Allardyce, Frank, do you love your wife? I was aghast and saw our host first pale, then a flinty look come to his eye. Doctor, I have loved that woman since I was sixteen, and to this day she can make me feel the age I was when I first met her. I don't know what's behind your question, sir. But there it is. Just as he finished speaking, I realised his wife was in the doorway, carrying a platter of food. She put a hand to her mouth, either in surprise or pleasure, and moved towards us and said playfully, Don't listen to that rogue doctor. It was that soft talk that let him catch me in the first place. We laughed a little at this. Then the doctor stood, touched the woman's elbow and led her aside and whispered to her briefly. Then he turned to Mr Allardyce and myself and said, Jerome, you and Frank, take tea. Mrs Allardyce and I have some business to attend to, and that seemed to be an end to it, other than the doctor later explaining that he had instructed Frank Allardyce to perform the act of love before our arrival, so that he might take a swab and test the vitality of the excretions. But he took more than one sample, one for the diagnosis and several others for purposes I suspected he did not reveal to his patient, his experiments.' In his laboratory later, he subjected the samples to microscopic examination, electrical charges, mixed them with chemical compounds and even made potions with them. Now, permit me to tell you about the potions. Dr North kept them in stoppered files in wooden racks. These in turn were locked in a cabinet in the coolest place in the house, the pantry, where meat and milk was kept and where salted fish sat in a barrel. It was my supposition that he drank these potions, a supposition confirmed one day when I stumbled upon his diary. The doctor had been suddenly called away to a man in his death throes, a choking illness that filled his lungs with water. I noticed his desk drawer had been left ajar, and, to my shame, I opened it and found the diary. Why I took the invitation of the open drawer, I am not sure to this day. In part, it must have been the need to understand my employer better, and his diary might explain his sometimes unpredictable character. Within the pages of closely written script was the hand of a man meticulous and always in control, I found that, indeed, he tested upon himself potions distilled from material drawn from his patients' bodies, sometimes drinking them, sometimes opening a vein and injecting them. He made inhalations with them, heated them or plunged them in icy water, made gels to be applied to the skin, but all in vain, I gathered, from the results discussed in the diary. I thought his actions dangerous, for if anyone from whom he had extracted blood or tears or sweat or the moisture of procreation had a congenital illness or was diseased, the doctor could himself grow ill or even die. But it was the back of the book that gave me at least part of the answer to the reasoning behind these experiments. In it was a folded letter on yellowing paper in a loose childlike hand, a trace of perfume retained in the weave of the paper and a signature, Madeline. The letter, dated a week ago, began thus. My darling Andrew, the doctor's Christian name which I never used, It pains me to write this, but I now realise you can never love me as I have loved, and still love you. That you are in fact incapable of love, though you have always shown me the greatest kindness and endearments. You have a great sorrow about you. Would you but recognise it? It may be that the darkness within you was there at your birth, and it breaks my heart to see it. You are delightful company, greatly admired by everyone, and yet it is as though you are not really present. Rather, you are an absence as if your mind searches vainly for feelings it cannot conjure up. But, my love, I know that you wish more than anything else to feel something other than that which your dear mind can calculate. But love is not a formula or an equation, but a gift. The letter continued in this vein for a page, the authoress recalling her pleasant times with Andrew North. How she, first admired, then fell in love with him. How she had accepted his proposal of marriage, but how, in the months leading to it, she had come to know his pain more and his incapacity. Dr North's wound is an invisible one, and over time it has grown cancerous. I pitied him. If he could have felt a mere fraction of my happiness that day I married my Arabella, he would have been one of the happiest men alive not even her father's snorting and insincere good wishes as we left the church. I noted the avaricious glance he gave Dr North and wondered what influence my employer held over my father-in-law. Not even that could dispel my well-being. "'Oh, Jerome,' Arabella said in the carriage as we set off upon our short honeymoon at Lake Garda, "'I am joyous today. You've made me feel so joyous. "'And now that you're qualified, we can live content in our little home "'and grow old together.' My tears start in me now as I write these words, grow old together. For how could such a thing ever be when it was never intended? I curse God for this cruelty. How can I ever be resigned to this? And now it comes to it, the part I have dreaded in my narrative. My career as an apothecary was not mercurial. But I set up a small and successful business in town, and Dr North always refused to send for his supplies from the more prestigious chemists in London and Bath, but always put his business my way. Jane Quinn had lately departed the shop with a package of blood pills for her mother, hair oil for herself and some cough mixture for the cold she persisted in imagining she perpetually had. The house is very damp, you know. The doorbell chimed as Dr. North entered and placed his prescription with me personally, as he usually did, inscribed in his fine hand on a sheet of vellum. He never sent his man-servant on this errand, and I believe he enjoyed his short conversations with me. I came from behind the counter and shook his hand warmly for my mentor was in no small way responsible not only for the finer points of my training, but also for sponsoring me, both financially, with the deposit, and as a referee when it came to acquiring the let from my small shop in the high street. And how is the mother-to-be, Jerome? Oh, she insists she is passably well, doctor, but it will not be long now before the birth, though, I fear in truth, she is very weak in spite of your advice and ministrations. Indeed, my darling wife had become a pale imitation of herself white as frost, with lips bloodless and thin, and eyes distant. She would wake in the night with cold sweats, often screaming with pain in her spine, clutching her swollen womb. Arabella is a strong woman, Jerome. Have no fear. She is capable of overcoming any obstacle. Those words echo in my dreams now. A perverse, inverted prophecy. For she was capable of nothing in the end and her dire shrieks of pain as she tried to give birth to her son will haunt me until the day I die. That final night, the doctor insisted we take her to his home, in spite of my protest that she was too weak to be moved. But always, always, the doctor knew better than I. And we made her as comfortable as we could and placed her in his closed carriage, swaddled in blankets and bed covers, and we rocked gently through the town and up the drive to Dr North's home, in its five acres of woodland. Everything she needs will be there, I told myself over and over as Arabella moaned and whimpered in her fever. Everything she needs. A maid assisted us when we arrived, and the doctor took me with him to his laboratory for his instruments and drugs, ordering me to find this and that for him. As much, I suspect, to keep my mind from my wife's torture as to assist him. The night was long, so dreadfully long. And yet, There must have been some while of quiet as I sat in a hard chair outside the bedroom, for I dozed fitfully, as though drugged. I had not slept for many nights, and was exhausted. I was awakened by an animalistic wail, but not Arabella's. I did not realise it immediately, but my darling girl, my light and my life, had fallen silent forever, long before the terrible sound roused me from sleep. Startled, heart hammering in my breast, I rushed to the door and threw it open. What I saw was a vision of hell, and if there is a hell after life it can never burn in me the way this scene before me did. The bed linen was awash with gore, dyed red and fitfully black in the guttering candlelight. Arabella's strangely peaceful face contrasted horrifyingly with her eviscerated womb, split from chest to reins. My twisted bloody child locked in its chamber, lifeless, curled and stilled in the midst of its struggles to live the umbilical around its neck, but it was the doctor who almost stopped my heart. His hands, his arms, his chest were covered in my dear wife's blood and he was smearing his face with the gore over and over, wiping it across his lips and cheeks and eyelids. "'It's not here!' he said coldly, angry. "'Not here! I'll never find it now! Never!' And then he looked at me, no emotion in his eyes, "'not so much as a hint of pity for me or sorrow for my wife. "'Look, Jerome,' he said, gesturing at Arabella's open womb, "'this is all we are. "'How can this, this, be conceived of love?' "'Something had broken in him finally. "'I can see that now, though I can never forgive it. "'So far as I am concerned, he murdered Arabella, "'and may he be damned for it. "'I will never know whether he tried to save the child or save himself.' but he failed on both counts, and succeeded only in taking away my hope and joy, that though love was never alive in him, he will never kill mine. I see him now as I write these final words, recalling him standing in the archway of yews on the day I waited for my bride to join me at the altar. He was fascinated by the yew tree archway, the door from one state of being to the next, as though it might permit him, Dr Andrew North, to move from his fated way of being to the one he most desired. It unnerved me how he circled their monstrous, calloused trunks as though plotting their diameter by guesswork or considering how deep their roots might grow. I now care not what he thought or felt, if he felt anything, for I know only Arabella lies there now, ensnared by those roots forever. But Dr North was a good tutor above all else, and what I learned from him ultimately was this. Love does not indeed reside in the heart, or in the head, or in any physical organ, in either a real sense or a metaphorical one. And yet, how can it be that while my heart remains alive, I feel at its very core a love which burns for my dearest one with a flame that can never be quenched?
3: i got to mention that story is narrated as you noticed by John Dobbs as well so links on to the site and yes I have my confirmation I have ordered my book I hope yous will too so that is show 176 big big thank you to everyone please look out for more of the parts from Michael Swanick Michael Swanick as you know along with Gregory Frost is on the Starship Sovas Writers Workshop have a look at Josh has built up a new site there. Holodeck Workshops. Links on the front of the website. Dave's made some fantastic graphics, and it's just like it's it's contained little bubble, and it's perfect. Please have a look over there. Have a look at that. Support Starships over by doing that. Links for everything else on front of the show until next week. I would just like to say good night from me. <coughs> Can our heroes survive this terrible ordeal?
1: Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week
0: for the next exciting installment of story Sofa, a valuation procedure initiated. Shovel set for launch. Herald will
1: be opened in three, two, one.